Hey, Sid, how are you? Just sent you a... Uh... I'm on. Okay, there we go. How are you doing this evening? Fantastic. Really good. So it's been uh, basically two weeks since we spoke. Right. How's your... Uh, what have you been up to? Oh, <laughs> lots of things. Learning lots of stuff. Uh, looking at uh, expanding in real estate in Toronto. Yeah, uh, which has been uh, actually keeping me fairly, uh, fairly busy. And, you know, I'm always studying things and uh, following markets. Yeah. Uh, my wife's pretty happy. My daughter's in, in Europe right now. She's having fun. So. Well, that's cool. Where, whereabouts are She's you? in uh, France. She knows France pretty well. And she's going off to Italy. She's uh, uh, moving from one private equity fund to uh, the next in California. So she started to take a few weeks off. Yeah. And I'll be meeting up with her in uh, Canada, in uh, Montreal, where she goes back as well. So that's that's good. Was was she a fan of short-term rentals, by, by the way? Uh, she's a fan of acquiring uh, 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 properties for, for fix-up and managing them because okay. she thinks it's highly inefficient in, in certain locales. And you can do really yeah. well, and you can you can uh, your cash uh, returns will cover you under various types of leverage or no leverage, and she thinks it's awesome. And you know, of all, you got to be in the right areas, and she's focusing on Texas right now, which right. she likes. So, so you know, that's what she's telling me to do. And I'm actually listening to her just like I listen to my wife. <laughs> I learned that's what I should do. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely makes things a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. You got to learn from people because uh, you only know so much. That's right. That's yeah. right. Um, okay, so we have a very special space today. This is our part four. Yeah. And um, the end of money as we knew it, part four. What will the new money look like? Right. Commodities, Bitcoin, real estate, cash, debt management. Right. Right. Okay. Um, should I start? Uh, you know what? Just wait a second here. Um, I'm going to add somebody as a co-host and they're going to put the, um, the slides in the nest. Okay. And I'm trying to get my headset going here. It's not cooperating. It was working, but. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you don't follow the uh, the hockey, do you, Sid? Uh, modestly, uh, you know, I used to follow it in the sixties. <laughs> oh, when it made sense? <laughs> yeah, when it was properly managed, and the uh, popcorn was like thirty-five cents. At Maple funny. Leaf Gardens. <laughs> yeah. Would you ever say you were a big fan back then, or? I was, I was, I absolutely, totally was. Now, they only had six teams at the time, and uh, you know, it, it was easy to be a fan, and everything was very, very serious back then, in terms of uh, the sport as opposed to the money. So it was, it was very, very interesting. Right. I, I got distressed how the owners of the league, obviously. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, it's owned by big two two big media companies right. now, right? So, a little different. But you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna put my bandwagon Leaf jersey on now that they got out of the first round. I think it's been now uh, I don't know 17 or 18 years. <laughs> so, well, we'll have to bandwagon support them. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me uh, just give me one second here. If this connects. All right, so yeah, let's get going. And um, again, thank you very much for for doing this, Sid. It's uh, it's a pleasure. I look forward to these. Very insightful. Um, I think everything that we cover is super high value to anyone, really, to to new investors, uh, people that have been in the markets for decades. There's a lot of things people can learn here. So, um, yeah, let's. Uh, okay, I'll hand it over to you. Okay, uh, this will probably be the the last. Um, session where we're reviewing all these big historical and economic subjects and we then we get into the specifics i think moving forward we're probably going to stay hardcore specifics in specific areas uh but this is the one that puts it together and talks about the new money and um the theme for tonight is is hyperinflation and deflation and uh you know some people think we're into hyper hyperinflation some people think we're into deflation you know the gold guys are the hyperinflation guys maybe some of the bitcoin uh folks and uh Elliott wave guys bob prechter seriously think we're into deflation and then really high interest rates uh being here for quite a while and increasing government concentration and government working with the small number of large companies have been the big issues we've talked about but i'm going to Focus on that very tightly. And uh, there's things happening in Europe with respect to China, Germany, going back to resources. Uh, we'll end up talking about uh, some specifics on real estate, some specifics on commodity and stock ETFs, and then just talk a bit about uh, the demographics and some of the things that have been hitting the news. And um, so I'll hit that. There'll be some re repetition from the past, but I think there's a bit of a different angle on it. I'm talking here about hyperinflation and deflation and what can we really expect and exactly why. And I'm going to hit the historical stuff very specifically to show exactly what's happened every single time. And that gives us what the possibilities are that we're going to be facing. The, also, the other very important key message, apart from trying to share a very uh, emotional and, and intuitive feeling for all this, is that all, as, this, as this stuff unfolds, it's going to take a long time. We might be in a difficult market or in a bear market or in a, a new world development, what they call an interregnum between one structure, one societal structure, the next, it's the words interregnum. If you look it up, we may be in this thing for five, six years, and it's going to be very different for anyone that's under the age of a hundred, which is pretty much everybody. And uh, this is, this, this is, this is novel, novel territory. And even it's causing me to change you know, what I focus on, and I'll talk a bit about that uh, towards the end. Okay, now, uh, the first uh, slide, let me just get back into it, is uh, uh, slide one. And uh, I go through a couple of, you know, we've all heard a bit about Germany, we've heard a bit about the, the 1920s, but I'm going to go through some other major historical times and to show what happened in those times. Uh, the first slide here talks about China between zero and 100 uh, uh, 100 AD. And uh, 
uh, that slide talks about uh, a guy called uh, Wang Meng, who basically was supposed to be the regent, which means that at the end of the first Han dynasty, there was a young child that became the emperor, but he was only three or four years old. So this guy was supposed to be the regent and be standing there as a supporter of the young emperor until the emperor reached the age of maturity, which would have been about uh, 10 or 11 or 12 years of age. So this is the first guy who went in for smart money. And this is the first guy who went in for, for controlling the population by using money and the military. So it's not just the United States or Great Britain who started this. This goes back 2,000 years. So here's a guy who, first of all, demonetized gold at that coins in China, you know, around zero AD. And um, he basically did exactly what Roosevelt did, told everyone they had to turn in their gold, and he, he, and he, he gave them back coins. There's some picture, examples of those pictures there, which I think you can see, uh, uh, Carl. And everyone had to walk around with uh, one of 28 different types of currencies at the time. And this is the time where they did not use the decimal system. People weren't particularly good with mathematics, but, you, but there were 28 different coins he, he brings in. He took all the gold. They were all in his coffers. He, and he ends up producing a massive inflationary period over six or seven years. Huge debasement. Uh, he criminalizes private coinage, which means if you had your own private coins or if you printed paper as a, as a business, you were imprisoned. He enslaved like 100,000 people who either had printed their own currency or had produced their own currency or who didn't report people who were doing that. And he basically used coins as passports, just like they're talking about smart money right now. You go into a store if you haven't got the right social credit points, which China is doing, and people have got concerns about it happening here with what uh, Lagarde's recent interview was. Uh, he actually did that. So certain coins were used for real estate activities. Certain coins were used to pay to enter towns or to stay at a hotel. And if you didn't have the right coins, you couldn't stay there. So. There's nothing new about what's you know coming to account right now. Uh, how did that all end up? Well, there were uh, riots. Uh, the riots uh, occurred in conjunction with the Yellow River changing its course because it was it was being overly uh, used and it wasn't being properly handled in terms of resources. There were massive floods, and he got executed by the revolutionaries or the parties. So that was probably the first you know example of um, of a uh, a smart money guy and a person who wanted to use money as bullets in conjunction with the military and prime example uh, right there. So the, the model for that, I think, is what some people are concerned about right now with uh, with the U.S. and with the uh, digital coin in Europe, etc. cetera. Uh, next slide is the slide two. Uh, you can hear me, right, Carl? I can hear you. Yeah, okay. I, was, I was just sending off the slides to someone who I invited to speak. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But they're they're there. Okay. Now, if you look to slide two, again called commodities, real estate, gold, silver, Bitcoin. I talk about uh, four different people there, and uh, the last person, Henry VIII, actually ties right into the situation we're in right now, and it, it actually was a continual progression. But if you look at, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of. Uh, Hammurabi, uh, he was uh, 
definitely a really well-known uh, historical character in ancient times, and they often talk about him being the first lawgiver. And if you go into the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., there's, I think, 24 busts of the great lawgivers at the top of that building. I've been there, and Hammurabi is one of them. Um, now, in Hammurabi's time, we're talking 2000 B.C., it was a very sophisticated society. Interest rates were 20%. And they were 20% because uh, Hammurabi didn't want people to, to borrow money. And if they were going to borrow money, it had to be repaid pretty quickly because 20% can't last for too long or else you're going to go bankrupt having to pay it. He ended up having a very strong economy, but he was a great leader. He was a one-man show. It was not an inflationary economy. He did end up uh, consolidating land and, and getting into wars, but those wars were funded by him and by taxes and by a very controlled economy. And... Uh, Therefore, with those high interest rates and with, with uh, basically no borrowing, that was not an inflationary economy. Now, we also had a very tight uh, legal system uh, called Hammurabi's Law Code. And uh, one of the codes was that if you build a house and if a man dies in the house you built because the home collapses, then uh, you kill the engineer who built the house. And if the man's son uh, dies, then you, you kill the engineer's son. Now, my buddy, Nassim Taleb, who talks about skin in the game and talks about not having asymmetric uh, possibilities in, in finance where people get huge bonuses for taking big risks. But when the risks uh, occur and they fail, the people who got the bonuses keep the bonuses, but it's the shareholders that lose the money. Nassim Taleb talks about Hammurabi's law code and how he actually had skin in the game at the time. It maintained accountability, that legal system. Incentives were aligned and risk was managed. In fact, uh, you knew if you built a house, if someone was to die, if, if, if the house collapsed or didn't last the way it was supposed to, you certainly had a, a very good management, risk management. At the time as well, if somebody was to commit fraud, if, if somebody had the gold on deposit and the person uh, didn't return it on time, Penalties were five times. You had to return five times to the person. So if you had a bank or the equivalent of a bank, and, and if, if the person came for his cash, he couldn't get it, you now own the guy five times in rice or in food or in metals. So it was a very disciplined society. No inflation, no deflation. And it sort of tells you what kind of society you have to have in order to, to, to have that. Now, uh, I refer to Rome over here. Now, Rome, I would say, is a perfect model for the United States right now for multiple reasons. One reason is that in Rome, once they moved into the empire, um, it lasted for 400 years, even though it was massively inflationary for 300 of those years. So things can last a very long time. Um, it's also quite interesting because Rome went from being a republic with a small government uh, to a uh, empire with the huge government. So I list the, the um, uh, emperors there, starting from 0 AD. Rome started as a monarchy for about 100 years. Then it was a republic for about 300 years. Then uh, the senators uh, assassinated Caesar around 25 or 30 BC. And pretty soon thereafter, emperors took over and it became basically a, a tyrannical system for 500 years. So you had Nero, who uh, basically 
demonetizes the, the currency by 10%. So the gold content for coins went from 100 to 90%. Then you had a few years later, Emperor Trajan goes from 95, 90% to 80 to 85%. Then Hadrian, the warrior, it, it reduces to 50%. Then after that, uh, the, the, the basement is 95%. By the time you get to 200 years after Nero, basically, uh, the the inflation and the loss of value of the currency is 99.98%. So the amount of silver and gold content was 0.02%. Uh, the lesson there is that um, this type of situation that you have in the U.S. with with um, uh, inflation um, could actually last a long, long time. And it's possible you could actually have inflation in the range of 10% real inflation for a long time. And even though other countries want to get off the currencies and Brazil and Russia doing what they're doing, this can still last a, a very long time. Now, the other aspect was during the third century, all this inflation uh, caused a massive reduction in real wages. Soldiers ended up being paid in food and clothes, and you had a massive wealth disparity. And all this happened before there was the that, that was caused by it was Constantine who who adopted Christianity for the entire state, brought in a very disciplined culture, and returned to the gold standard. So the lesson there was you know, is that uh, the current economic situation with real really underlying inflation of five to ten percent can last a long time. Interest rates can be high for a long term time wealth disparity can be here for a long time but if you're concerned about your own savings and your own position in society per se you have to be awfully clever and you have to be able to work with the government as one possibility or at least not get arrested um the other uh model on that page is henry the eighth and what i'm going to say about henry the eighth i talked a bit about him before but i'm going to make the uh the following comments number one as I mentioned before, he invented England by basically kicking out the church, uh, ultimately creating the Church of England, executing anyone who disagreed with him, uh, and basically fought a civil war with the uh, with the Welsh, with the Irish, with the Catholics, and basically created uh, modern England. Now, inflation was dramatic, and he dealt with inflation by basically building up an aristocracy around him who he rewarded. Basically, it was an oligarchy. Uh, the average person lived at subsistence levels, but he was able to manage to do it. Uh, but you had high inflation, and uh, basically he ended up leaving a lot of debt behind him. Now, what happened was uh, a few years after he passed away, uh, with some intermediaries, Elizabeth I becomes the queen, a profoundly disciplined person, moves back to the gold standard. And under her, interest rates were 10%. Now, just before her, interest rates were 10% to 12% for a period of about 50 years. So there's a couple of, uh, just three or four interesting uh, lessons from that. Uh, one lesson is that um, if you're going to fight wars, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tend to be highly inflationary if you're establishing a new society or a new structure. And I would say if you look at North America right now, and if you look at what's happened with the Ukraine and Europe and what's happening with Germany and etc. We'll talk a bit about that shortly. You have a new societies being formed, which unless you tax people to death, 
uh, is going to be inflationary. So we're in those types of times. The other thing is that people can actually survive and live with interest rates of 10% to 15%. And the other thing is, just as with uh, Rome and Constantine, and just as with Hammurabi, if you're inflation or superinflation, you have to return to a gold standard or the equivalent thereof. Or you have to have austerity where you actually tax people. And we'll talk a bit about what happens in that situation. Now, I'm going to go to the next slide, which talks a bit about the United States. Now, here's something that's really interesting. So in England, you go from Henry VIII to Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth starts up the East India Company. So part of her ability to grow Britain is colonialism. And just like uh, Rome grew through colonialism, colonialism and, and international war and building an empire, trying to maintain inflation and keep the people happy, as did Henry VIII, as did Queen Elizabeth, the impact of that colonialism in the 1600s was that Queen Elizabeth and, and, and her subsequent kings and queens and Oliver Cromwell, etc., basically controlled and kept the Americans quite impoverished during the 1600s. They passed an act called the Navigation Act in the 1650s, which prohibited the colonies, i.e. the United States and Canada, from trading with the Europeans. And they also prevented, uh, just like Wang Meng did, they passed laws saying you couldn't have your own currencies, you couldn't use gold, you had to send gold back to Britain and America. So the Americans actually moved towards a barter system. They uh, used wampum, which was uh, you know, coins and sh which basically shells that the, the natives used. They used tobacco, they used playing cards. They moved towards bartering. So you had a very tough time in the, in, for the colonialists for about 100 years. Eventually, uh, as they started to move towards uh, a revolution, they produced uh, paper currency in order to support the, the, the military, the revolutionary military called the Continental. And the Continental, as I note there, was supposed to be the equivalent of two million Spanish silver dollars at most. Now, it was so tough there that they actually used Spanish currency as currency. They actually took Spanish coins. They broke it into eight pieces. That's what the term term. And they, that's what they did in order to survive. But when they said that they were going to produce their own paper currency, which was two, the equivalent of two million Spanish silver dollars, Within four or five years, they go from two million silver dollar equivalents to 240 million silver dollar equivalents, causing massive inflation of 300 or 400 percent, hyperinflation, moves back into bartering. And of course, all that stuff results in the American Revolution and uh, is part of fun financing the American Revolution. And of course, that occurred because Britain believed in mercantilism because of what Henry VIII had done and because they wanted to take care of themselves because they were colonialists and imperialists. So these things keep cycling around and cycling around. And it explains right now why the United States has weaponized the dollar and why there's such horrific inflation right now in Africa and Latin America causing political problems in Africa, political problems in Latin America right now in Colombia, etc. So. These situations continue. Now, what caused financial stability in uh, America in the late uh, 1780s after the, uh, in the middle of really of the, of the revolution, which went on from 1776 to about 1815? Well, it was colonialism. But who was colonizing America? It was France, 
and it was other European countries because they were fighting Britain. They made loans in gold uh, to the Americans and they traded with the Americans. Uh, the Americans then were able to obtain gold illegally as, as a, as a uh, country when they were part of the UK. They returned to a gold standard and that's eventually how gold actually stabilizes. Now at the same time when they had paper money, uh, on the paper money, the government paid 5% interest. So the money had to carry interest as well. So you can see how uh, you've now got a situation very similar to where we are right now. We've got 5% interest. They went to 5% interest. But in other areas, you can go to 10% interest for a long time, which is quite possible. And eventually, you have to go on to some kind of a, a forced method of uh, maintaining uh, the value of the currency, or you have hyperinflation. And that typically has been, right to the present day, frankly, the gold standard. So that's pretty interesting. And you also see how uh, when one country starts to suffer under inflation, serious inflationary times, either they go into austerity, like uh, Russia did, you have, you have the Russian Revolution, or like the French did, you have the French Revolution, and the reign of terror where lots of people got executed and killed if they disagreed with what the government was doing. Or you get... Next... Uh, major state. Uh, the next slide is uh, slide four. Um, there's a reference there to just some of the modern inflations. There's a lot of material there about uh, uh, inflation in France. Suffice it to say that during the revolution, inflation got up to uh, thousands and thousands of percent, uh, which uh, ended up causing uh, the reign of terror, but which then ended up causing a dictatorship to be formed in France, and that dictatorship was uh, Napoleon, who then ends up having to declare war on the entire, uh, all of Europe and, and Russia in order to survive and tries to colonialize Europe, and of course he fails. Uh, next period of time where you get these kinds of inflation was in Germany in the 1920s, which I'll go into a bit more detail in terms of how they dealt with that and what happened. And also Russia, Russia with the Russian Revolution. Russian Revolution, we know they just repudiated the debts, had 212% inflation in 1922 to 1924. If you go to Germany, we've talked a bit about the German inflation, which hit 30,000% per month. But we didn't talk about what happened afterwards. And that's actually pretty interesting. Uh, the German Empire was, was failing. The Russians were getting more significant. The uh, Americans were getting significant. The Brits were getting significant. So they ended up in World War I. Then, according to our history, non-German history, and I guess modern, current German history, uh, Germany lost the war. Uh, the war was funded by the United States of America. The United States of America funded France um, and funded uh, England. So after the war was over, France was in debt and, and um, England was in debt to America. And of course, they wanted reparations from Germany. So Germany had been forced to agree to make massive reparations. They end up trying to pay for that just with, with paper currency. And you have this massive inflation, which caused huge amounts of poverty. Middle class got totally wiped out. Uh, the only people that had any, any money left were, were some of the major industrialists, some of the banks, and that was it. Uh, so now you're close to a, a communist revolution and a, and, a, and a fascist revolution in Germany, 1920s. 
Who ends up taking over and who stabilizes Germany? Well, in the same way that uh, Britain had, uh, uh, had, had fought, and then France lent the Americans the gold to stabilize their economy. Now America does the same thing to Germany. They lend the gold. They do trade with Germany. And you have stability in Germany, apparent stability for a while. But what you actually have is an impoverished nation and a nation which has to make huge reparations. So even though uh, the currency got stabilized going on the gold standard because the Americans were funding it, that only maintained during the, during the 20s when you had the roaring 20s in the U.S., you had a boom in the U.S., you had lots of economic growth in the U.S., and the Americans were actually controlling and mandating what the uh, German economic policies were. There was massive resentment in Germany, uh, but it, it survived because the Germans were not borrowing huge amounts of money in gold from the Americans. Now, what happened when the crash came of 1929 to 1932? Well, now America's starting to go under with the Depression. Europe's going under. Now Germany has to make these payments. They haven't got the support of the Americans. The money is going back to America. J.P. Morgan and the banks had funding, the German banks, who was funding the debt uh, growth, debt-induced growth, which was funding the reparations. Now Hitler gets into power and, you know, you end up with, with the next major world war where 100, 150 million people get killed. So these uh, uh, trends of empire building in order to keep the, the population happy, inflation, colonialism, and then either you last for a while or now you, you become so big you get attacked and you've got too much inflation and somebody else takes over who's more disciplined. These things have been going on for a long time and we're in fact in the middle of that kind of a cycle right now in the United States. Um, if I, uh, move into the next slide, there's pictures there of Hitler and pictures of people just carrying tons of money and throwing money in the streets. I have a quote there on slide five, Carl. Yeah, I can see that. And just so you know, I did invite a few people to speak. Uh, okay, okay. one of those people, their handle is called the economic long wave. And I listened to one of his real estate, uh, spaces, uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, yeah. um, and he, I think he would appreciate your Elliott Wave theory, and also he could speak on on real estate. So, uh, stand by, please. The economic wave, but um, yeah, continue on. Sid. Yeah, we'll be getting to that. I'm 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 going through this pretty quickly, but I'm expanding from what we've talked about before. I'm I'm going to conclude in terms of what it means for us right now, and what you can take or not take from these lessons. I have a quote on the fifth slide of thirteen. And that's a quote from William Shearer, who wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And there's a very interesting guy. He was a journalist. He was a historian. He was a really bright guy. But his, what he says, he says World War II was caused because the German Weimar Republic is not responsible because they should have taxed more and not printed all this money. But that's childish. It's silly. The truth of the matter is they were forced to make reparations payments they couldn't afford. Once you have a war, you can never repay it. Just like, you know, uh, should the war in the Ukraine get settled, it's never going to get uh, paid off for. They're going to have to start from scratch. And even a guy with the brains of, of William Shearer doesn't realize what's driving the money aspect of society, what, what actually drove the war. 
Now, when I go to slide six, okay, on slide six, uh, it talks about hyperinflation and how hyperinflation ends. Uh, I put these this information together from a really good book uh, written by uh, a chap in China on hyperinflation. And, and here's what he says, and it's sort of interesting. He says, okay, excess government spending uh, causes inflation. Well, it's easy to say that, but we're, the only reason governments spend money is they want to stay in power. Uh, they want to keep enough people happy who can elect them or who can, who can revolt. So that's a natural event which occurs. Then they say inability to borrow abroad. Well, when a country collapses because its empire collapses, of course, it can't borrow abroad. So while it's true, the inability to borrow abroad uh, causes massive hyperinflation at home. Um, that's just what happens over historical cycles. Uh, and of course, uh, right now, you've got a huge number of countries still borrowing from the states, but you've got the states borrowing from other countries. And the states right now, because of the SWIFT system, the international banking system, can borrow abroad. But at some point, that's going to win. Then you've got, uh, you know, citizen responses. When citizens realize there's going to be hyperinflation, then they start to take over. Well, you saw that with every jurisdiction. The, the colonials uh, produced their own currency. That was made illegal. Finally, they revolt. Uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, people had to go in a barter system. In the Wang Man era in China, people got in prison for creating their own currency. So that's what happens. But at some point, you do have a revolutionary period. Then uh, in this book, he says, okay, well, what, what causes the end of inflation or hyperinflation, etc.? International assistance. Well, that's what I call colonialism. Somebody else takes over your country directly or indirectly. Uh, war, civil war or international war. We've seen that with France, with Napoleon, with the Russian Revolution, with World War II, with World War I, with Henry VIII. It goes on and on. Mexico in, in the uh, late... Uh, late 1800s returns to the gold standard you had the new frank yeah you had the return uh, under constantine and rome etc always a return to some kind of standard or total dictatorship such as uh, communism uh now as far as specific actions are concerned new currencies yep you get new currencies but what really have is a society interest rate hikes yeah once you've got a real disciplined society you get interest rate hikes i.e real high interest rates but you do wipe out literally a large amount of your population who can't cope with the new world. And right now we see a lot of people getting wiped out in, in the United States. And you just have to walk around in any city, from parts of Toronto, certainly New York, San Francisco, Detroit, Chicago. You can see a lot of people getting wiped out. If you're on Twitter and just look at what's been happening in the Walmarts and in various stores and stops and subways, people living in subways, a lot of people getting wiped out. Fiscal austerity, yep. Uh, another way of saying wiping people out. And price controls, they never work. Structural reforms, well, that's basically, you know, the revolution. Now, the next slide, slide seven, uh, I would just state this. Uh, a lot of people say George Soros is a major player in terms of U.S. policy, in terms of uh, leftist-type politics. I'm not sure if he is or he's not. I don't think he is. but but he describes a philosophy which is actually underlying what's happening. And I think it underlies what people don't talk about and don't write about in the Wall Street Journal of Financial Times or Twitter or uh, Bitcoin 
journals or, or coin telegraph, etc. And I mentioned Soros before. And what he says is if we carry his line of argument to his logical conclusion, he's written tons of books on this stuff. And he's, of course, very close with the World Economic Forum, very close with Barack Obama, very close with all kinds of people. He says the meaning of life consists of flaws in one's conceptions and what one does about them. Life can be seen as a fertile fallacy. That's the problem. Uh, that there's as soon as, as soon as life is seen as fallacies or governments are seen as fallacies and everything's seen as propaganda, that's when you get a certain type of government behavior. That's when you get inflation, hyperinflation, and it's always revolutionary changes which actually causes that to end for a certain period of time. The modern world and the modern state was invented by Thomas Hobbes. There's a picture of Thomas Hobbes on the bottom right of uh, that, uh, that page, page 7 of 13. He wrote the Leviathan, and uh, he basically invented the idea of the modern state. And the idea of the modern state was that it was based on Copernicus. It was based on his interpretation of science, as opposed to the earlier philosophies of Aristotle and Plato. And he said the state uh, is the thing. Uh, this thing exists in order to keep peace. And everybody has to follow the laws under a social contract, except for the king or the sovereign. And he's actually the guy who started the concept of nation states in Great Britain, in Europe, I should say, in the 17th century. The reason I refer to Samuel 8 is that in the Bible is that the Bible simply states that if you're going to live in society with kings, you're always going to have inflation and you're always going to have austerity and you're always going to have financial duress. That's just a, a fact of history. If you go to page eight on the next slide, there's various uh, quotes there from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from Proverbs. But I'll just read a couple of them. One says Proverbs 22.7, a rich man will rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Uh, Psalm 37.21, a wicked man borrows and does not pay, but the righteous one is gracious and gives, etc., etc. Uh, now, it's all there. Uh, again, everything we're seeing right now has happened before multiple times. But I summarized in the middle of page uh, eight the specific scientific truths about the spiritual and secular aspects about money. One is money must be expensive. That's why Bitcoin has probably got to be mined. That's what keeps it expensive. And that's why gold works, because gold has to be mined. And it's rare, but it's got to be mined. If it didn't have to be mined, if it didn't cost about 2000 bucks an ounce to create it, it wouldn't have much value. Uh, money holding must involve, therefore, a natural cost. Good money cannot be subject to senior edge. Senior edge means the government fakes um, the amount of gold in the coin, or they fake. And senior edge is basically uh, uh, debasing currency. So if a government decides to debase currency, it's a lie to what it stands for. Well, then it's not going to work. Clearly, it's got to be divisible, storable. It's got to be carryable. If you can't carry it, it's not money. So smart money that Wang Mang used, the smart money that Christine Lagarde talks about and the European Union is talking about, social credit type money, that's not going to be very good. And money can't be confused with wealth. Okay, next slide. Uh, Right now, um, I'm just referring to Janet Yellen and, and, and President van der Leyen in Europe, president of the European Union. I've got uh, two quotes there. 
But suffice it to say, both quotes are profoundly anti-China. They're basically talking about war and controlling China. And I have a, a reference there to the Financial Times article, U.S.-China relations have entered a frightening new era. Martin Wolf, very well-known guy, talking about all the challenges with China. And I've got a reference to this book I've talked to before called Unrestricted Warfare, written by two senior military uh, generals in China, where back in the late 90s, they were talking about using finance in order to not allow America to take over China and the world in order for China to, to have its, its right as a, um, as a, a strong country, um, independent of the United States. So what China has been working on started long before the 2008 Olympics started back in the 1990s. Uh, I have a book in my hand right now. I just have my desk called the hundred year marathon. It's called China's secret strategy to replace America as the global superpower written by a guy called Michael Pillsbury. These are things which have con concerned the Americans for a long time. But I'm not saying that what the guy writes is true or not true, but it underlies substantially American policy. I also read a, 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 a journal called Foreign Affairs. I've got the May-June 2023 edition of Foreign Affairs on my desk. You might want to look it up. It's about the non-aligned world. Foreign Affairs is published by the Council on National um, what's it called? The um, the the uh, Council on. Uh, let me just look up. I just lost the uh, title. The uh, Council on Foreign Affairs, um, and uh, that council has been accused often as being the the shadow government for the United States. Council on Foreign Relations. Excuse me. This is a journal which was always talking about how how America was the best, the greatest. Uh, controlling the world, peace in Iraq, keeping peace in Libya, keeping peace in Africa, etc. If you look at the recent copies of these journals, the whole concern they have right now is the non-aligned world, the possibly uh, multipolar world. You know, these are major issues which which are affecting the stock market and the economy, etc. And if you look at those two quotes from Janet Yellen, who's supposed to be the Treasury Secretary. And uh, what the European Union is concerned about, you can see how there's underlying political things occurring right now, which is actually now hitting uh, the front page of the, of the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times, the big financial press. It wasn't there a year ago. It wasn't there two years ago. So these things are starting to, to you know, show up uh, in the popular press. Uh, um, but only in you know fairly significant political journals or uh, in uh, financial journals, you don't really see too much about that starting you know appearing yet in social media per se. Um, page ten of thirteen, um, I talk a bit more about some of the core uh, economic concepts of inflation, hyperinflation, etc. This ties now into some specific uh, thoughts and recommendations on stocks, but. I'd say this, number one, what have we learned from all this? One, growth is evolutionary. Economic destruction comes in with spiritual destruction. It starts off slowly, but when catastrophe strikes, it does strike. But it can take a long, long, long time. And we're probably a long time from uh, a major event, but uh, it's not as easy to accumulate wealth as it used to be. And in fact, for a lot of people, it's become impossible. 
Point number two I add here is that access to credit is going to vary dramatically. Uh, what's causing the reduction in the money supply right now is not so much government reductions in the money supply. It's commercial reductions in money supply. And what, what we're seeing happening with the uh, First Republic Bank right now, what we're seeing with, if you look at the uh, you know, mid-tier banking indexes, uh, you notice that those indexes are falling dramatically uh, as we speak. Um, we're, we're certainly seeing uh, these, these changes occurring at a certain accelerating rate right now. Um, I give caution with respect to price protected speculation right now. All the charts I look like, I'm looking at right now, we'll talk about it momentarily. I don't think technically any of the charts look any good at all, except maybe Apple and uh, Microsoft. But most stocks look pretty awful. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, there's two economic laws. There's Gresham's law we've talked about, which is well known that bad money chases out good money. But there's Tears law which is uh, that eventually good money chases out bad money. So sooner or later, good money, whatever causes that to occur, will chase out uh, bad money. So it's going to be the exact reverse. Uh, the next slide, I just get into some of the headlines. We've talked about this before, but, but this is stuff that's occurred in the last uh, week or so. Um, First Republic, sharp sell-off. The stocks have fallen dramatically. It's about to get taken over by uh, one of the large banks. And uh, frankly, right now, if you look at the uh, banking statistics, uh, something like, uh, let me see if I can just find this here, something like 50% plus of uh, total bank deposits right now are held by the, by the biggest 10 banks in the United States. So you can see banking concentration, along with technology concentration, is uh, occurring at a... Uh, a significantly increasing rate right now. In terms of the treasury curve right now, the long curve is about 4%. The short curve is quite high. Why is the short curve high? Because people like me and other people, to the extent they're holding on to money, which is a good thing because we might be seeing deflation as opposed to inflation or hyperinflation. I'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, but that's getting reflected in the short end of the curve because people are going short and I'm going short. I'm, I'm a holder of... Uh, U.S. T-bills, and I'm a holder of uh, Canadian T-bills and Canadian bankers' acceptances. So I'm one of the people. There's a quote here from Christine Lagarde. Christine Lagarde and and uh, the head of the Fed uh, as well got interviewed by two pranksters from Russia who convinced Christine and convinced J Jerome Powell in separate interviews that they were actually Zelensky, which is Unbelievable that can happen, but but there you go. <laughs> I was I was watching the uh, Lagarde interview, and she's putting her lipstick on and, and fixing up her hair just as she starts. And she basically said, "Look, we're not going to let anybody else take over our currencies. We're going to have our own smart currencies." That's on YouTube. You've probably seen that. I've got a copy here from the European Data Protection Supervisor. This published uh, recently, uh, number one in twenty twenty three. Again referring to the uh, central bank currencies. There's an article from, I think, Coin Telegraph talking about the U.S. dollar falling behind the one for Chinese cross-border transactions. I've got quotes from the Shapeshift CEO last week talking about U.S. authorities and crypto saying, well, you know, they're not going to kill it yet, but, but he's got concerns. I think he's quite naive in terms of what that's about. 
And there's an article April 26th, just a couple of days ago in the Wall Street Journal by Greg Ip. It's been, you know, one of the major commentaries on investing and financing. Banking problems, you know, may just be the tip of the iceberg. That's pretty obvious. Uh, the next slide is the one with uh, Ray Dalio in there, right? And there's Ray Dalio being interviewed by a millennial, right? The millennial guy, I forget what the guy's name is. He's doing the interview. I guess Tom Billy, who he doesn't look too happy. He's got a, he doesn't look too happy at all. And neither does Ray Dalio for that matter. And Ray Dalio talks about what we've been talking about here. Again, this is towards the summit of our, of our series here. What are the problems that are, that are affecting the world right now? One, money and debt. Two, internal conflicts. Three, external conflicts. Four, 75-year cycles. He talks about looking at the last 500 years, which is what he studied. But I've looked at the last three or four or 5,000 years. Nothing's changed. And the evolution of ideas. We're certainly seeing a bunch of new ideas here, but we don't quite know what they are yet. You've got the so-called left wing. You've got the so-called right wing. The reality is, to me, they all sound pretty much the same. And I don't think they know what they want, but they're not happy because of wealth disparity, because it's hard to make a living these days, because millennials are having a hell of a hard time. And the social obligations are half a million dollars per U.S. citizen. And uh, the U.S. dollar is looking risky. Now, um, I've also got here the private sector debt service ratios for the U.S., China, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. This is courtesy of uh, Russell Napier. At the end of 2021, for the private sector, the amount of, of, of EBITDA, which has to go towards debt, is massive. And that's a real problem. And Napier does talk about, as I have today, well, how do you get rid of this, this, this debt? Austerity. Uh, well, uh, no one likes austerity. And you can see the problems we're having with civility and with violence uh, in the United States and occasionally in Canada, but especially in the United States right now. It's not good. Austerity is not well liked. Well, you can get a high real growth rate. Well, we're getting a reducing growth rate if you look at the recent statistics in the U.S., so we're not getting that. You can get a government default. I don't think we're going to see a government default, even though they talk about it. Government defaults on the average, according to Napier, 6-7% decline in GDP. Well, during the Depression, it was a lot more than that, so that's not good. Hyperinflation, um, you know what? We, we could see hyperinflation, but frankly, I don't think we're going to see hyperinflation. Uh, we're going to see ongoing inflation of really about 10% per year, which is going to wipe out the debts. Uh, and that's because of the government, which right now is about two, or th two thirds of the economy becoming even bigger. But uh, we're also going to have the social obligations for health, education, and welfare continue to be eliminated. And basically, we're going to have all the pension obligations and health obligations are just not going not to be carried out in the U.S. So you're actually going to have uh, financial repression. You're going to have uh, the obligations not being met. The austerity is going to go against people over the age of uh, 50 or 45, which, of course, makes sense for the younger groups because they feel these are the, the people who caused it. I don't think they personally caused it. They just went along with the government. So in a sense, they did. Uh, but you've also got a lot of people who can't cope that are, you know, uh, on fentanyl and others, you know, bad situations. You got a very high uh, increased uh, uh, death rate, murder rate in a lot of the cities in the United States. So, you know, those things are happening as well. 
And you're going to have a movement towards private schools, charter schools, et cetera. So they're going to be getting rid of your social obligations. So therefore, I don't think we're moving into hyperinflation. Uh, I suspect we're not going to have deflation. It's a possibility, but I don't think we're going to have it. But I think we are going to have real inflation of about 10%. Now I get into, okay, where does that put me in terms of investing? Well, um, I'm certainly a holder of short treasury notes. So I'm in cash because deflation is a possibility. Uh, The stock market with what's happening with anticipated earnings and revenues, which are falling, and most stocks are falling. The only reason the indexes are up is because of five or six key technology stocks. Therefore, I'm holding a lot of cash personally, but I'm holding the cash in notes of up to um, three months. I'm not going to six months, four to five percent. Real estate, I'm actually um, personally moving into real estate. I'm moving in, not commercial real estate, because that's horrible right now. Uh, that's all failing with uh, BlackRock. It's failing with Brookfield, uh, just walking on their real estate. I'm just going to uh, pause you there. Yeah. Um, so I, I can, uh, you know, I don't know for sure, but I can sense the economic um, uh, long wave, who, who is a speaker here, probably has something to challenge you on the real estate front but um maybe you can sort of just elaborate why you're going into real estate or why you like residential real estate um obviously everybody i think knows at this point commercial real estate is not a, a good look right well uh, uh, what the key theme of this uh talk was about and i guess it's the summit of the first three talks is that there's historical precedent for what's happening and the historical precedents teach you that all the stuff ultimately is caused by empires failing or empires growing and an increase in civility, uh, a decrease in civility and sort of wars, etc. But you've also got changes in society. And for example, we have a shrinking uh, population in New York, a shrinking population in L.A. and San Francisco. You've got people moving towards Texas and Florida. In Montana, etc. So, therefore, the world's not ending in general, but you know, in general, uh, the average person doesn't die either. But every day, 20 million people do die. So, for those that died, they died, but the average person does not. So, if you look at real estate, I'm, um, you know, I've got concerns about the value of money continuing to fall over time. I've got concerns about, hey, do you know, I like stocks that go up. I'm really more of a speculator in stocks. I'm not a long-term holder. And uh, I think, as Warren Buffett pointed out, he's made a lot of money over the last 50 years because of declining interest rates and because of declining interest rates. And, and that's sort of over right now. And he's not trying to fund, he's not trying to fund like he did before Goldman Sachs and the banks when they had real estate problems before he's staying away from it. So... I'm saying, okay, what asset classes do I like apart from, you know, short-term T-bills? Well, there are some pretty good cities out there and there's good places to be. So if you know, uh, you know, uh, Central America, or if you know, you know, towns where people are actually moving, or if you know Toronto or Yorkville, where where I have um, some real estate holdings where I have my office, that's a good place. Uh, A lot of brokers that used to hang out downtown hang out up here. It's socially, it's becoming a very exclusive place. There's still places that I can acquire, uh, which uh, are, are good for Airbnb or good for short-term rentals. Therefore, 
as the world shifts and as things shift around, here's a specific real estate area that I know. I was actually born on Yorkville Avenue and I, my mother worked here and I know the place well. I understand it. I'm on the board of one of the buildings here. So because I know it, understand it, prices are reasonable and, and I can see them going up and doing well. Therefore, that's the kind of real estate I'd be getting into. My daughter talks about uh, three and four type uh, family units is a good place to have. I may get into that as well. Uh, but she also says, and she's a funder of real estate projects, that of all the real estate projects going up in the U.S., uh, 80% of the projects are for 20% of the people. So therefore, I would say you've got to focus on the uh, 20% of the people. Where are they located? What are they doing? And that's what you invest in. So that's where I, why I picked the specific real estate I pick in. So it's a knowledge that I have of Toronto. It's knowledge that I have of the particular region of Toronto that I like. And it's a specific uh, advice that I'm getting. And, you know, I've got the projections and I'm dealing with experts and I'm sort of working with that. In terms of commodities per se that I talk about, I personally like the Sprott uh, bullion funds. He's got a gold trust fund, PHYS. He's got a silver fund, PSLV. He's got a combined fund, CEF. He's got a physical platinum palladium fund, S-triple-P. Can't go wrong with that because he takes a lot of the challenges of, of making your own specific selections. He makes it easy on you, and he's an expert. Then in terms of his ETFs for uh, companies, for, for public companies, um, I've invested in three uh, juniors. And I've done quite well on them. One is BIG, Bald Eagle Gold Corp. It used to be called, now it's called Hercules Silver. The other is DLTA, Delta Resources, and the other is FUU, which is a, a uranium company. But I happen to have highly specific knowledge of those companies. In fact, one of those companies, I found it. And the other company, I know the chief geologist exceedingly well. And the third company, I know the people behind it well, and I've studied it well. And it takes, uh, that's been a career for me, but it also takes you know, hundreds of hours to know these companies well, and you've got to know the people. If you haven't got that kind of highly special focus on um, ETFs and good ETFs, not badly managed ETFs. I know Eric Sprott. He's been around since uh, before my time, even. And uh, I knew him when he, you know, I know knew him when he was at Omer's. I, I tracked him when he had his own uh, brokerage house. I used to uh, be a, a service provider to him. I've watched him at Cormark. I know uh, Peter Groskoff at Cormark. I know the, the portfolio managers there, and I know what they've invested in. So when they've got SETM, Sprott Energy Transition Metals Fund, Lithium Miners Fund, Uranium Miners Fund, et cetera, those are great uh, managed companies. And therefore, if I'm going to get involved in something that I don't know as, in as much detail as, as I do specific companies, I've got no choice, and that's sort of the, the you know the way that I would have to go. Um, in terms of uh, concentration of assets, I'll just mention: if you look at the bank deposits in the states, Morgan's got sixteen percent of them, Bank of America's got fifteen percent, Fargo's got eleven percent, Citibank six percent. Uh, Fifteen banks control almost eighty percent of the total cash deposits. Do so you know that the small banks are going to be disappearing? And that's pretty obvious. So, you know, we talked about Schwab a while back. I was short Schwab. I've actually did okay on that, right? Very, very dangerous uh, situation right now. 
In terms of market breadth, I talked about that in one of the slides. The market breadth, i.e., the number of the very small number of stocks which account for most of the pretty pusillanimous gain in the S&P over the last two years, is is the worst market breadth that you've had in 30 years. Mostly driven by you know Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Meta, AAPL, and NVDA, etc. That's 53% of the return on the S&P 500. Uh, that's not very good at all. That tells you that the market is very, very, very risky. And in one of these slides, I think it's slide uh, 13, the last slide, um, uh, courtesy JP Morgan, I give some of the current statistics in terms of concentration versus 2021 concentration. So if you look at the top uh, 10 stocks, the top, or let's say the top 20 stocks, that's 33% of the market cap and the vast majority of the return on the S&P. The revenue growth is 5% in those companies. The earnings growth is 6% and the PE is 22 times. Well, those growth rates are tiny compared to what they were in 2021. In 2021, for the top 20, at 14% revenue growth. Now we're looking for 5%. In 2021, you had 15% uh, earnings growth. Now you're looking at uh, 2%. And you had a 24 multiple. Now we're at 20, but our earnings are way down and our projected earnings are way down. So that is... Uh, now, in terms of looking at the specifics of real estate, I've just got some of these numbers here. In terms of demographics, Florida plus 2%, South Carolina plus 2%, Idaho plus 2%, Montana plus 2%, Texas plus 1.6%, New York minus 1%, Illinois minus 1%, Louisiana shrinking, California shrinking, New Jersey shrinking. So that sort of tells me if I'm getting into real estate, you know, where I uh, I sort of want to be. Um, in terms of uh, other things of the of the economy right now u.s home foreclosures have now increased on an annualized basis for 23 straight months that's pretty interesting auto repossessions are booming right now there's an auto repossessors summit in disney in orlando it's if, if you want to look it up it's under reposummit.com and the title is putting the magic back in repossessions that's actually the title, name of the conference, putting the magic back in repossessions. That's interesting. Brookfield, I've talked about, um, and C Capital One CEO is talking about delinquency rates being up substantially in the last 30 days, uh, up by 134 basis points. That's dramatic. If you look at KER, KRE, excuse me, which is the, the mid-tier bank, S&P Spider, that stock chart looks bad. So there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, challenges that are going on. Uh, now I'll just sort of talk about some of the positives I see. And, and this is interesting. Just before I do that, I'll just mention in summary sort of what I'm noticing. One, I've noticed certain types of foods are not available and certain types of shampoos are not available. I use like a, a tar shampoo because I sort of need it. Can't buy it anymore. And I used to like O'Henry bars and I can't get those anymore. And I used to like Fritos corn chips. I can't get those. That's very bizarre for me. What's, what is that about? I don't have the answer, but it tells me that very strange things are happening. One, if you study international policy, we're on a war pathway right now. I can't guarantee that, but we have got a pretty awful situation in the Ukraine. 
And it's getting close to Europe and it's worrying Macron. And you've got the Americans complaining about how they're not getting the support from the southern nations, Latin America, Africa, India, etc. There's there's a high death rate, which is occurring in this bad demographics. That's interesting. Then you've got the immigration situation in the U.S. Uh, The mayor of New York is saying that they're running out of money. They can't deal with it. In Detroit and Chicago, it's the same thing. These illegal immigrants that are coming up, yet the federal government is making it easier and easier to get in. What's happening there? My guess would be that they're actually trying to solve the demographic problem without really stating it, but it's it's sort of interesting. Uh, You also have a government consolidation that's going on. You know, back in um, 1907, there was a 1907 to 1910 depression, and I've studied uh, various literatures on that depression and on that collapse. It was part of really a a 30-year collapse. That 30-year collapse ended up causing lots of wars. That's when America uh, took over Cuba. That's when America kicked the Spanish um, out of the Philippines. That's when America built the the uh, the, 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 um, canal, Panama Canal. You had this expansion going on, which then led to World War I and World War II, etc. Now, at the time, there was a big uh, fight on about these robber barons. People said the trust, J.P. Morgan, the Harrimans, the, uh, Carnegie, etc. Those were the bad guys who were causing the problems in America. So Theodore Roosevelt was antitrust. And, <laughs> and there were books about all these terrible monopolies. At the same time, there were books about terrible Theodore Roosevelt, who was destroying American business. So you had very different views as to what was causing the problems. Very much like you have in America right now, where you've got different views as to who's causing the problems. Oh, it's Donald Trump. Oh, it's Biden. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. Identical to that. But what you had back then was you had the trust versus the government. Now we've got the trust and the government are the same people. That's, in my opinion, quite possibly why uh, Microsoft and Apple and Google are doing really well, because they're working with the government in terms of AI, et cetera, et cetera, military, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a new kind of theme developing, which is concentration of business, concentration of government, shadow governments, and they're all working together. That is something that's really quite new. I can't think of any historical analogy for that. The the historical term for that is an oligarchy. We've got oligarchy being formed. We've used the word dirigisme, dirigisme. French word, which uh, basically is that type of an oligarchy. And that's what Napoleon created in France. And that's the way France operated for 150 years after the French Revolution. Um, so here's some good news. Uh, number one, I, th- I thought this was interesting. April 24th, 2023, the Wall Street Journal is talking about, quote, the surprising surge of faith among young people. About one third of the 18 to 25-year-olds say they believe more than doubt the existence of a higher power. I think that's a positive. You've got something of a return to uh, a belief in something bigger than government. Uh, That's a real positive. I'm not surprised. I would have predicted it. And in fact, it's that type of, um, of independence and that type of spirituality, which may be starting to occur, which in fact, Elizabeth I, carried out and that's what made uh you know britain big 
And when and that's what Hammurabi Hammurabi had. And when you get people that now take full responsibility for themselves and believe that there's more to life than just the love of money. There's nothing wrong with money, but it's the love of money, like it says in the New Testament, that's a problem. That's a real, a really good, interesting event. Uh, what it said was that one third of the 18 to 25 year olds said they believe more than doubt in the existence of a higher power. That's interesting. The article on the 24th also said that young adults, theologians, and church leaders attribute the increase in part to the need for people to believe in something beyond themselves after three years of loss. You know, that's, that's a positive. So there are positive underlying things which occur. And like I mentioned before, it took Rome 400 years to collapse finally after, you know, 300 years of massive inflation and stuff. So, you know, times can be tough for a long time and some people sort of make it and that's okay. I'll also mention that the S&P uh, dividend yield right now is 1.66%. Carl, do you want to guess what the S&P dividend rate was in 1932 after the crash? Right now, it's 1.66%. What do you think the dividend yield was in 32? Honestly, I'm just guessing. I have no, I have no basis. 15%. Wow. 15%. Companies were actually paying 15%. But people were so afraid of stocks at that point, so how emotional all these things really are, that, that they wouldn't buy it. So um, I'll end up with just a few final quotes. I'll be wrapped up in about uh, four minutes. Okay. Roy Newberger, famous guy who runs mutual funds in the U.S., got a big building he works out of. This is what he said his advice is for, for investors. <clears throat> Cut, lose your short, and let winners run, uh, number one. And I've noticed when I buy stocks these days, I do tend to, uh, to, they don't tend to do that well. So I'm certainly one person who cuts, lose your short, and lets winners run. That I do. <laughs> Thank God. Number two, you have to invest with specific end goals. You haven't got specific end goals is a big mistake. So I've got end goals for my stocks if I buy them. Um, I've got end goals for my resource stocks. So I've got end goals for, for end goals for gold and for real estate. So I have got that. Number three, emotional and cognitive biases should not be part of the process. And that's really, really hard not to have. We all have them. So how do you have that? Well, you deal with a hell of a lot of smart people. You read a hell of a lot of literature. You try really hard to be objective. It's impossible, but then you intelligently diversify and don't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, or you do what Warren Buffett did. You find a partner like um, uh, Charlie Munger and, and you have a, a, a lifelong friendship with someone that actually keeps you rational and sane. Newt Berger also said, follow the trend. That's really hard to do right now because there is no real trend right now. That's interesting. He said, don't turn a profit into a loss. That's really hard to do. Not to turn a profitable loss. That, that's a whole study in itself. Very hard to do. And uh, the only uh, people that seem to talk about that it really intelligently is uh, Bob. Bob would be paying, pay a lot to read their recent comments, etc. He also said the odds of success improve greatly when technical analysis supports fundamental analysis. Well, there's fundamental analysis we've talked about in previous sessions. There's technical analysis and there's macro analysis. Right now, it's impossible to know where the macro world is going. Rates going up, rates going down, whatever. The only one thing I can say for absolute certainty about uh, macroeconomics, you know, macro analysis. The Fed never has 
never can't control interest rates. Never have, never, they have nothing to do with setting interest rates. And the fact that they keep talking about the Fed this and the Fed that is, it just tells you how much you have to doubt what you read in the popular press. The Fed cannot control rates. The government can control what they spend. They can't control inflation. They can control what they spend. And they can control the military to some point, but you can't control interest rates. Nobody can, including the Fed. So that's, that's, that's macro. Now, it comes to fundamentals. Well, right now, fundamentals are terrible for most public companies. Um, there's exceptions. Uh, if, you're, if you know AI well, if you're in the service economy, say, you know, uh, health services are disappearing, social services are disappearing. But if you're dealing with companies or with people who serve those who have money that are getting older, like fitness, for example, or education, you know, uh, charter schools, etc., those are all fantastic businesses, either to be running or to be investing in. Uh, those are good businesses. Uh, that's important. Uh, try to avoid losing positions. That's pretty obvious, hard to do. And now Newberger also said something else, too, which is very, very, very interesting. He said, in bull markets, you should be long. In bear markets, neutral or short. Well, I'm basically neutral. If you want to be short, that is, that is that's to create expertise. Now, it's remarkable, these 24-hour these options, which have become very, very hot right now, it's, it's not a good sign that people are getting into it. Uh, invest first with risk in mind, not returns. That's pretty obvious. And the goal of and success rate, easy to say, um, hard to do. Uh, last comment I'll make about me personally right now. I don't really like stock charts right now. I mean, I like using stock charts, but... None of these stock charts look particularly good right now. Gold actually looks sort of okay. Long bonds look terrible. Uh, the market looks like it's in a bear market rally. You'll recall from previous discussions, bull markets are impulse waves, up, down, up, down, up. And uh, bear markets are, uh, are uh, triangular waves, down, up, and down. Well, right now, we're in, the down, we're in an up in the middle of, of, of two downs, I would say. That, that's, the charts say it. And the charts are also widening out. You've got uh, 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 zigzag-type functions in the market right now, but you've also got multiple zigzags. That's not good. ETFs are fine for commodities and fine for commodity stocks. Uh, If you're going to invest in specific commodity stocks, man, you have to be an expert. Like I said, I like DLTA. I like BIG. I like FUU. But I have very good knowledge of all those, which did not come quickly. I'm actually looking at maybe getting involved in Ghana with gold, but I'm an expert in that stuff, so that's okay for me. Uh, high interest rates. Um, long rates could actually go a lot higher, or they might not if we're into deflation. Um, I got a feeling long rates are going to go up higher, and I got a feeling short rates are going to stay where they are, and we're going to have 9 10% inflation. That's just a gut instinct. Real estate's great for areas where you're an expert. It's one thing for me to give an opinion or somebody to give an opinion, but if you're going to do it yourself, you know, are you going to have debt in there? What kind of debt? Is it going to be short? Is it going to be long? Can you carry it? Long discussion. And as far as commodities are concerned, you know, I indicated which ETFs for hardcore commodities like platinum per se, gold per se, silver per se, and uranium per se, I like, which is uh, Sprott's commodities. And if you're going to do stocks, I'd go with, with Sprott stocks as well. And I don't get a fee or a commission for saying that. It's just what I do. And, uh, 
You know, that's I, that's basically it. So when we started about an hour ago, we said we talked about hyperinflation, deflation. We've done that. I don't think we're going to see hyperinflation for reasons spoken about. We could see deflation. That's why I have a lot of cash. High real rates. Boy, when you look at the history of the Roman Empire, of Hammurabi, of the Americans during colonial times, of the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution of the 1920s, we're at the high interest rates. Government getting larger. Uh, that's for sure happening. War, that's a problem. That'll, that could change everything. Now, in terms of resources, if you looked at the Financial Times today, Germany is now talking about getting back into mining resources in Germany because they can't, they've had a problem with oil because they depended on Germany. And they're afraid the Americans are going are gonna to sort of slow down trade with China. And uh, uh, the head of Dingler Benz today said that they, they can't afford not to work with China. So, uh, you know, they're, they're hedging their bets and they're getting back into resources, notwithstanding Greta Thunberg and her friends. Uh, the U.S., we said we talk about, and my, my comment there is it'll take a long time to get off the U.S. dollar. It'll take a long time for things to evolve. So it's still probably the best, which is fantastic. The border issues we talked about, very confusing, but I think that's how America is dealing with, uh, with uh, demographics. and. These problems with Chicago and the demographic situation in New York, et cetera, that's going to have to be dealt with in a will. Uh, the last comment I'll say is that, you know, Bill Maher and uh, Elon Musk had an interview a couple of days ago. Did, did you see that one, Carl? I've seen highlights of it, but not the entire thing. Okay, I, I listened to the thing. I was, I was perplexed by a few things. Uh, one thing I was perplexed by was that Maher seemed bored during the interview. As soon as Musk started talking about things intelligently, uh, he mentally turned off. And he's a pretty bright guy. So that's interesting. It tells me something. Number one. Uh, number two, when they talked about the so-called woke Hold virus. On, I want to ask you, what, what does it tell you? What it tells me is that the average person can't comprehend what the heck is going on. Right. Because he's at least as smart. Bill Maher is at least as smart as the average person. He wants to know. But when Musk actually starts to describe it, it's way over his head. And Bill Maher is not a dumb guy, right? So that's, that's actually frightening. <laughs> it's actually frightening. Now, I'm not a particularly dumb guy either. I'm not saying I'm a smart guy, but I try hard. And if I think of how many hours I have to put into figuring out what the hell is going on, and I still hardly know, man, it's hard to sort of know what's going on. So you got to read. You know Robert Kiyosaki, right? And you know Rand Paul. And Warren Buffett and all those guys. And you know Jeremy Grantham, right, Carl? That yep. name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? You have to read their stuff and listen to them and think about it and put it all together to even start to comprehend what the heck is going on. And Bill Maher can't do it. Now, Elon Musk, I have to admit, uh, in terms of everything that he says, he's never said one thing. Well, um, in terms of policy, well, except for Neuralink and except for um, putting things in animals' brains and trying to put things in people's brains, which I think he's doing that way too aggressively, except for that, there's nothing he's ever said that I disagree with. Uh, Mara was talking about, oh, there's going to be resource limitations. There's not enough resources, not enough water. Uh, Elon Musk said there's more water than you need. Desalination is easy and there's lots of resources. Bill Maher didn't get that. What it tells me, 
again, just my opinion is that Mark doesn't think, he doesn't know. He goes along with, with the uh, propaganda that we've been fed now for 25 years since uh, the old uh, guy who ran for president that started up this whole baloney about climate change started to talk about. Um, but Bill Maher goes along with it, but Elon Musk knows it's all basically made up. He knows, and if you look at the cost of resources over the past 2,000 years, people have been worrying about resources disappearing for 2,000 years. And all that's ever happened is that the real cost of resources keep getting cheaper and cheaper. So Musk has got that right. And Bill Maher, you know, as objective as he tries to be, he's got that wrong. That's sort of interesting. Um, now, there was one interesting part of that. There's a major part of that conversation which was interesting. It talked about the so-called woke virus. There is no woke virus per se. What you have is is a very unhappy population right now. That's all you have. And you have people trying to find out what they should be doing. And you have people who don't know history. And therefore, they just respond to what they happen to experience in their three or four decades of being alive, which is not very much experience. So they're just going to respond to whatever isn't working, whatever it happens to be. So you've got, you know, fluidity of sexuality. You've got, you know, postmodernism. You've got structuralism, all this weird stuff. But that's because they're just responding to what happened last week and last month. If they actually knew history, they'd be a lot more deep, a lot more, a lot more spiritual, a lot more interesting. Now, here's where Musk sort of gets it wrong. When Maher talked about the so-called woke virus, which I don't believe in at all, by the way, and, and he said to him, well, what's causing it? Um, Elon Musk says, and I think he means it. I don't think he's a guy who says stuff he doesn't really, that he doesn't honestly believe. I can't say that for sure. But Elon Musk said, well, you know, the educational system has been pretty poor for 20 years. And people have been, uh, teachers have been making stuff up and teaching kids stuff that's not true and not telling the parents. Well, that's where Elon Musk is flawed. And I think he knows better, but but maybe not. All we have is, classic cycles that occur every 75 or 100 years. And then there's 500 year cycles been gone for 5,000 years. That's why I talk about this stuff. That's how you have to understand it. I thought that was very interesting uh, in that interview. Um, but um, he's, a, he's a good guy to talk to. The other thing I like about Musk is he's, an, he's ultimately an optimist. Um, he wants to go to Mars because he's got concerns about the uh, what's happening on Earth here. Well, you know, Christopher Columbus did the equivalent. Marco Polo did the equivalent. All the people who left Europe and Ireland and, and Germany and went to America did the equivalent. The people went to Latin America. Now, they happened to wipe out all the previous populations that were there. But the previous populations probably wiped out the previous, previous populations. So, you know, that's sort of what happens. Um, so bottom line is, um, over the last five or six sessions, I wanted to get down to what's really going on. Uh, this kind of stuff didn't matter for an investor for 50 years because all you had to do if you were in North America was just invest and you were going to make money. But the world has changed and it hasn't stopped changing. We're in the interregnum, which is the word I keep referring to, which means we're between two empires. And it could take uh, five or 10 years to figure out, you know, where the next empire ends. You want a recent analogy? We're right now, I would say, where Europe was in 1929, 1930. Uh, it was uh, 10 years between that and World War II. And World War II lasted five years. That was 15 years. So this is probably going to take a long time. And Rome, it took 500 years. So <laughs> all that me means is 
the world's the world. Uh, for any one individual, my personal philosophy is the world is just a high school. It's a junior kindergarten. It's a place you happen to live. If you want to become a dictator or a wannabe dictator, go ahead. I'm not, I don't plan on doing it. I don't plan on being a prophet. I don't want to be Jordan Peterson. It doesn't seem too happy to me. You live your life. You learn from what's happening around you. You've got your wife, your spouse, your friend, your significant other or significant others, if you're uh, pluralistic or, or, or poly, polytheistic, <laughs> whatever the, the term is. And, uh, you know, your soul improves. Uh, and understanding wealth and savings is um, difficult. But I've tried to get into what the real hardcore parameters are and share with you what I personally do with, with uh, my savings and, you know, what I sort of do to uh, have enough capital to be happy. So thank you very much for that. This has been a great series, um, part four, obviously, today. And I want to open it up to people that have comments or questions. Uh, I, I, again, I did bring up um, the economic long wave, and I don't know your names. Sorry, I'll refer to you as from your handle. If you want to, uh, you know, unmute yourself and, and follow up or have if you have any questions, did fire off. Um, uh, you know, I think it's brilliant, um, Sid. You know, the fact that you've uh, you've gone this far and you've shared your knowledge with everybody, it, it really does help, uh, you know, especially younger ge generations, put the, the pieces of the puzzle together when trying to figure out why things are happening. And for me personally, it, it it's uh, helped me a lot to not be uh, as reactive to, you know, certain uh, headlines that happen. Um, but yes, I'm going to, I'll pass it over to the economics. If, uh, if I'll just say one thing to you, to you, Carl, if I could, they'll, they'll be quiet. As when we started your why the heck I was talking about cycles of history, right? Yeah. But right now it's sort of clear, right? Like that's what it's all about at this point, I think. Yep. Okay. Sorry, I, I only heard part of that. But um, okay, go ahead. So I, there are a couple of people took took their mics off. Uh, I'm going to fire it over. First person to take their, their mic off. Go ahead. Hey, well, how you doing? How you doing? Like, listen, I I've got short time, so l let me let me add to some of that. I um, I if, if people don't know who I am, uh, just call me Joseph. I uh, used to manage capital for twenty three years. Uh, fell into cycles, the long wave, the speculum cycle, Elliott wave, socioeconomics, and Armstrong economics, and. The, the the cycles what I'd like about them is it explains everything. There is there is um, it, it it puts order in the chaos. The or, what I can add I think right now because it's too long of a conversation is real estate is probably where Sid I disagree with probably on the opposite end. Here's the reasons why specifically in Toronto. Extremely overvalued, 17 times income. Uh, the millennials' uh, buying power peaks next year. The population pyramid is collapsing. Immigration does not solve it. What, what we need is to see a baby boom again. And we already have massive defaults, right? Rising interest rates, as he said, because real estate is interest rate sensitive when you don't have rising income. So if we just would have had um, the government's not extending the amortization, we would have already had our own systemic collapse in Canada. I, I mean, people can do what they want, 
but if I had to look at one asset I would avoid like the plague is Toronto real estate. And I grew up in Toronto. I love this city. It's a fantastic city. But I was trained by John Templeton, uh, the great value manager. And he always told me to look out for bargains. Where are things cheap? Where is the trend, you know, negative where we can, you know, allocate capital. So real estate is the most dangerous asset for the simple reason it's leveraged and leveraged to the price of credit. As interest rates move up higher, we'll get accelerating defaults. And then that puts the Canadian banking system insolvent within six months. That's the problem. So if, if we didn't have these technical defaults, we already would have had the banking system collapse in Canada. And I find that is the most dangerous asset you could own. Now, in terms of hard assets, I agree, gold's the place to be. The trend right now in the market is uh, positive. I think it's seasonal. You know, we hit a bottom in Toronto in October. I run models because uh, I used to run models for hedge funds and mutual funds, and it's positive, but looks like it's going to roll over in May. So the markets are still collectively in Toronto in a bull market. Now it's a bounce, except for the banks. The banks are extremely weak. And I love gold here uh, long term for so many reasons. I think Sid alluded to it. Uh, I don't go into individual stocks because that's so hard. I look at sectors. I think sectors are, are better play. So if you can look at a sector that's undervalued and then ride the trend, that's what I did. And in terms of not bragging rights, uh, but when I was wiped out in 89, um, my goal, and I started actually in the investment business the same year, I said I was never going to lose money again. So I learned from the masters. And those masters taught me, and I was able to avoid the 2000 collapse, the 2008 collapse. 2020, of course, was a surprise, but the, the global economy uh, was weakening. One last point, uh, inverted yield curves of God going back 200 years. It's a warning signal. Leading indicators around the world are rolling over. 2024 looks like it's going to be um, not great. And the most important year in Canada in terms of real estate is 2025. Now, I have a Substack sub account for people who want to follow the model. I always said when I launched the service, I was going to make it inexpensive. But 2025 is critical. 2025 is a real estate cliff in Canada. Okay, what does that mean? The last of the millennial buying power peaks next year in 2024, and the fastest growing age group in Canada is death. And that is the front end of the baby boomers are going to put a huge amount of supply of real estate. Immigration is not going to solve that problem because they have to be able to afford real estate. It might put, uh, put, it could possibly uh, raise Canada's private debt. Oh, I forgot to mention. Most of the private record debt that Canada has is larger than Japan in 1989, which was larger than the U.S. in 1929. Now, Peter Kungo told me valuations are a measurement of risk, not timing. Private record private debt levels are a warning of risk, not timing. But once it blows, and it's going to blow in the real estate market, then that's massively deflationary. And I think deflation will show up in Canada. Now, the war 
the geopolitical war could change all that. So I'm not going to discount that. But the geopolitical war could cause an inflationary cycle. So you have to pay attention to that. But we have all the precursors for a massive deflationary collapse. Population aging, expenditures, record private debt, huge amount of leverage in real estate that's unsustainable. And the most important thing is economic growth is continually to slow that even if nothing happens by the 2030s, Canada will be deleveraging because we're not getting the economic growth to sustain the financialized economy, right? We have too much finance in Canada's economy. Uh, half of it won't exist in 10 years. So anyways, that's, that's my two cents of you from the you know long way perspective. But I use the seculum cycle people might know by the fourth turning, um, Armstrong and Elliott Wave. And the reason I follow all those, they have alluded to Kondratiev. That's, that's my profile picture, right? It's a dedication to Kondratiev who discovered these long cycles of 50 to 80 years. And it, it's a fascinating insight into um, uh, forecasting the future. I'll leave it on a good note. The the models are forecasting a decentralized world emerging by 2040. That is, we'll see the collapse of governments, a move to Asia, and the technologies will pick up where, uh, uh, let's say, like the, the sick care system. It's not sustainable. But the good news is the genomic revolution, the stem cell revolution, is going to transform uh, humanity in ways we've never seen. And this is the beauty of the long wave, right? The long wave is. Uh, propelled by technology, the downways propelled by financialization, unsustainable credit, and then you get a deflationary collapse. So I said that quickly. I hope that was informative, and that was just some stuff I could pass on to you. Thanks for yeah. letting me speak. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for, for joining. I'm glad I sent you the link today. Um, Sid, do you want to follow up with your own thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I, if, if you still want, I'd like to ask him uh, if you had uh, $500,000 today and that was it, so cash, what would you do with it? If I had what? How much? If somebody had $500,000 saved up, they have a job, they make $100,000 a year, and they've got $500,000 saved up, what would you tell them to do? Well, I'll tell them what the model is uh, telling me to do is 50% in cash, 20% in gold and silver, and 30% in the market. Um, I have a model um, that avoids every downturn in any cycle. So, and that could change, of course. But right now, that model is 50% cash, 30% equities, 20% gold. That's today. Understand that that model can change in three months or six months. The model changes at most four times a year. I'm not a trader. I'm not a speculator. I just run models based on uh, Martin Pring wrote a great book from the Kondratiev cycle, the business cycle. I copied it, and I uh, uh, developed a Canadian version. So that's that's what it tells me today. Uh, how do you what, feel what about it, uh, interest rates? Do you have any perspective on that? I'm talking long bonds over the next. Yeah, I I, I, I I avoid them like a plague because they're going to default. Uh, two, we're in an interest rate. Um, upturn in interest rates on my Twitter feed. I just, I think I posted it yesterday. I've got the five-year note in the long way from 1946 until recently, and we broke the downtrend from 1981. Right, that's 
uh, falling interest rates. We hit a record low. And I think, Sid, if you follow, um, I, I subscribe to only maybe three services, and Elliott Wave is one. I don't use Elliott Wave, but I love the social economics because when I was managing money, it really helped me understand people. Um, so we're in an uptrend. It's not straight, but that's going to put um, pressure on the real estate market because it's so leveraged. Now, there's good news. Uh, uh, something else. Uh, we have a stagnant workforce for the first time in Canada's history starting next year. So wages should start to increase. That's, that's what's different. There are some differences in this wave. Long-term mortgages didn't exist in the last wave. We have a, uh, a bulging population pyramid, and we have a uh, stagnant workforce. Even though Canada's population is increasing, and it might grow to 50 million, most of it is because Canada's aging. And uh, that's, that's kind of good news for the workers, right? Their wages should finally start to turn around. Two, two more questions for you. Uh, question sure. one is when you say, I think you said what, 30% in the market, did you say? Yes, sir. Okay. What does that mean, the market? Tell me exactly what that means. That means you would, you mean the S&P 500 index or what do you mean? Well, I'm in uh, Canada, so I have an allocation in between. Uh, right, there's no sectors. I had I was in resources, and that that exited last year. So I have it mostly in the the TSX. I use ETFs because it's inexpensive, efficient. I can change it in a day, and I use inverse funds uh, for my aggressive account, personal account. When the market goes bearish, right? At one times, no two times, three times inverse. So if the model goes bearish next month, then I'll take out those um, uh, that equity position. I'll go to 80% cash. When I started in the business, John Templeton, Peter Kundal, and Charles Brandis used to hold 50% cash. That's wealth management, and that's what I grew up with. I, I, today, people are fully invested, which is to me is obscene. But I believe as in an aging bull market, an aging business cycle and extreme valuations, you raise your cash position and deploy it in the downturn. So that's what it would look like today. Next question for you. Uh, Rob Frechter and his buddies there think that we're, we're headed for a 90 to 95 percent correction in the equity markets. Uh, what's your perspective on that? You know, that that's where I'm. I, I think that's inevitable, but not yet. If real estate rolls over, which it is globally, then as in the 1990s, capital might go into the markets and we still might have another run. But what I like about, I don't forecast that part. Real estate is easier because real estate, you can pinpoint the fundamentals, but with this type of model, if it does drop 20 to 50 or 90%, then I'm out of the market. It doesn't make a difference. I think that's eventual. If you look at the, the Nikkei, if you look at the uh, European, uh, sorry, the um, uh, Greece stock market, a lot of stock markets, Iceland stock markets, you know, 80 to 90% are normal. I've got every uh, stock that has dropped in history from Tulip Mania, right? So, Yes, that's that. It's going to end up like that. Um, exactly when? I would say at the earliest 2024, 
the latest by 2032 because by the 2030s, if you just do a linear extrapolation of GDP in the U.S. and Canada, we will we will we won't have the economic growth, and I think that's why they're going to war. So war is the only uh, variable you have to pay attention to, right? Because as you said, you insist, it's very pleasant. I think you and Sid agree on that 100. percent How about Bitcoin? Last question. Very last question. Oh, man, that is. I love the technology. Um, I believe it, I love the empowerment of the individual, but I think you and I would probably agree there's a financial war with central bank digital currencies, Bitcoin, and a central bank backed gold in Asia. Who's going to win the war? Listen, I'm going to speak at the Bitcoin conference in Toronto in June, and I'll give a more detailed um, insight into that. But I hope it wins. I'm cheering for it because I. Anything that empowers the individual, but I'm I'm I love the technology, but I'm old school and I'd like gold for the for insurance, um, but I'm not against it. Okay, let let's get it clear for an audience because I love Bitcoin, I love gold simply because it is a it's real money and you can bring your coins to any part in the world and you'll exchange it for some kind of value. Bitcoin is an emerging technology, and until the internet is adopted worldwide, and everybody is, so maybe it'll have its day. But you know, Sid, that Bitcoin's up against the central bank digital currency, and it's a war here. So I'm cautious because too many people are 100% Bitcoin, 100% gold, 100% real estate, and I think that's a mistake. I think you should diversify into hard assets and digital gold um, because we don't know exactly what's going to happen on the other side of 2024. Right. Yeah. Sid, so you probably agree with a lot of that, right? I probably do. <laughs> yeah. Sounds familiar. Um, Joseph, are you familiar with the term anti-fragile portfolio? No, I've read the book, but I don't know anti-fragile portfolio. No. Okay, that was, I think and we covered that part one or part two of our series, but that's basically what you're describing is, uh, in a nutshell, uh, you know, to, to have an anti-fragile portfolio in these, in these times, uh, something that's robust. Uh, Sid, do you want to elaborate? Well, just to say that uh, Nicholas Taleb, who I think is, uh, is a very helpful individual, um, his, his concept is that anti-fragile assets are important, i.e., Convex like parabolas, when, when the price goes up, they really go up. And when the price goes down, they go down at, at uh, decreasing rates. But he says no more than 5% of your total portfolio should be in anti-fragile assets. And therefore, every uh, 10 or 15 years, you'll have a big win. Uh, that philosophy is not that different from uh, uh, Warren Buffett and Munger in a certain way. And the way it's not that different is they say, the average person over a lifetime might make three or four really good decisions. That's that's a great thing. I, I will I'll leave it at this because uh, I have to run. It was it was interesting. Maybe I could do it another time with you guys. But I, I think the thing is to be aware because now we, we I think as Sid has mentioned, I agree because if you look at any of these social cycles, we're in a transitory period but there is 
enormous amount of good news. And the good news is in technology. And all of the technologies are empowering the individual. We don't need the state. Obviously, the state doesn't want to give up that power. So that means, as Ray Dalio's mentioned, we're going to see civil unrest. Um, you know, we don't need big government. We don't need a big pharma. We don't need big hospitals. Right? There's a great book called The End of Big. The It's just these cycles are switching to a decentralized, right? It's boom and bust. Centralization, decentralization, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't mean that Europe, Canada, and the United States breaks apart, but that's a high probability uh, because there's so much internal conflict. A lot of people want to keep uh, uh, what's unsustainable and um, creative, destruct creative destruction, Schumpeter, right? That's, that's the, all of what I do is about the old orders collapsing because it doesn't work anymore, right? It doesn't support the economy. It's only enriching the wealthy to the impoverishment of most Canadians, Americans, Europeans. And so it's going to be a war, and who wins that war determines the future. It's not the elite. That's one thing is certain. I will say with 100%, it's not the elite that determines the future. It's the public and what they're going to accept. So the public would rather choose Bitcoin, and the public will... Uh, uh, choose to embrace technologies like, you know, the internet, the smartphones, um, anything that empowers them. And that's the exciting part. And I, I agree with Sydney. Uh, you know, uh, Elon is brilliant and he's, he's on the cusp of all these technologies. And that's exciting. And it's exciting. It means humanity is going to the next level in terms of empowerment of the individual. But like Sid said, it's not a smooth transition, right? Let's let's be honest here. It's about power. Who's going to lose it and who's going to win that power? So anyways, I, I hope that helped, guys. And uh, I'd love to do it again, but unfortunately, I have a commitment to go to. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again. It was fascinating and interesting. And I hope I passed on some information for this audience tonight. Thank you. You Thanks. have. And um, I got a couple of private messages. But who is this guy? Uh, where else can people follow you? And if you want to just, you know, plug yourself or other things to do, go for it. Sure, sure. Um, actually, I'm I'm launching the website tomorrow. I'll tell you very quickly. I um, so you know my background and how I came to know what I uh, uh, talk about. I was an ignorant of a person in 1989. I got uh, proposed to my ex at the time, and I didn't know I I, I bought real estate in Toronto right at the peak. And the same year in '89, I started the investment business, so I was wiped out financially. I couldn't go, I couldn't uh, declare bankruptcy, so I had to pay, pay down that debt. When you lose money that young, it was a lesson, and I said I was never going to lose money again. And I learned from the masters. I managed money for 23 years, and uh, 2012, I had to leave because I had a traumatic brain injury. I'm uh, recovered from that, and I'm stronger than ever. And at the same time, I was sending my research to hedge funds, mutual funds, long story short. So I said what my friend said, Joe, you gotta, you got to bring this to the public. And I started on Twitter a couple of years ago, and uh, tomorrow uh, I'll have a website. I have a Substack account. You can subscribe for free. If you want guidance for a model, I'm not an advisor anymore. Let me make that clear. Uh, I, I can... Uh, but I can give you a model, what to do with your allocation, 
the website was there for people to learn about the models, to learn about the long wave, where we are in the cycle, and uh, and and I'm 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 pushing also on the website for the decentralized renaissance. I'm going to work, try to work with leaders, uh, movers and shakers, how to build Canada in the 21st century, and the 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 decentralized renaissance is going to be the good news on that part. So. I hope that's the information, and uh, yeah, and uh, have a follow, and let me know, and send me a direct message, and I can give you more information, so, but I got to run. <laughs> yeah, sounds good, and check your LinkedIn. I know, I know someone sent you a request there. They, they told me to tell you to check your LinkedIn there. Okay, thanks for joining, and well, next time we do this, uh, I'll send you a private message, and maybe we can elaborate further. Okay, th- thanks for inviting me, and uh, this was interesting and fascinating. I, I-, I love talking about uh, markets in the future. So, good night, everyone. Thanks. Okay. Good night. Good luck on, good luck on your venture. All right. Thank you. Next? Thank you. I think, uh, go ahead. Uh, unmute yourself. Um, you got your hand up there. Yeah, great Great to be here. Uh, this is Ravi. Uh, I live in New York, but I do a lot of work on uh, especially looking at the decentralized uh, in the world phenomena. In fact, yesterday I was hosting a very interesting space on looking at India. As, as you know, the previous speaker said, there's a lot of focus which is really moving to Asia. And there was a very interesting, uh, you know, article by the Wall Street Journal that the world's epicenter is slowly moving away from China to India. And, you know, there, there's just three important factors, you know, and really, really want to commend this on the topic, the end of money as we know it, because it's already happening. At least, uh, you know, I was in India two weeks ago. Uh, I don't know how many of uh, you know that we have the unified payment uh, interface. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was in India and I wanted to make a payment using my uh, uh, credit card. And uh, I'd gone to buy groceries, right? And they were like, why don't you do uh, UPI? I was like, what do you mean UPI? They said, we don't take cash or, or credit cards. You just do a UPI. And, and this is where the point that decentralized financial systems Tools and mechanism are going to be very much the center stage of the new world order. So really, I mean, I was so so much in awe with what was being said. And second factor, right? Uh, you know, just looking at the statistics of where India is today, it's about three point five trillion GDP. But Indians, as you know, we are obsessed with gold, right? We hold about one point five trillion dollar of household owned gold. And I think this is a little crazy, but I think it's also another another interesting factor is that the household wealth in India. Today is about 14 trillion, and very few of us know that. But the irony is really, and maybe Sid, you may be uh, looking at these numbers. The irony is out of that 14 trillion, only about 500 billion is really invested in the stock market. So Indians really like to hold more cash in their bank accounts, more in form of property, more in uh, forms of gold. And I think with this change, as you said, you know, as, as all the world goes through many uh, cycles, right, and it's going through one right now. I think this is where that opportunity really comes in. So I basically look at, uh, I actually curate the India 2047 uh, Investors Forum in New York. And of course, I'm happy to uh, share more about that. But the question I really have is, you know, that uh, as the world is changing and we are looking at uh, this new phenomena of uh, quote-unquote de-dollarization and also the kind of uh, de-linking of the SWIFT system and as well as, you know, looking at, um, uh, you know, uh, people moving, uh, moving away, away from the, uh, the European and the North American financial system. People in mean, many countries in the South, especially in the BRICS countries, have started to look at their own bilateral agreements. 
rupee, which was only never used to be an international currency. The 17 countries, uh, because of the Ukraine war, have started to trade in rupee right now. And most of that is digital, right? So on your point, as, as the world is moving and embracing technology and the AI-driven economy, we'll see more and more focus towards more decentralized, more transparent, and hopefully more accountable systems of, of money exchange and asset creation. So my question really, Sid, uh, uh, is really for you because, you know, you've been in this area for such a long time. You've seen the evolution of the European market, the American market, the Chinese and the Hong Kong market. What are what is your projection for India? And, you know, there was an interesting question in the Twitter space that I was hosting yesterday with the Minister for Technology. I was doing an interesting uh, Twitter space. And one question that came to us was, you know, right now New York is the world epicenter when it comes to financial trading. Will that ever move to Asia in the next 50 years? So just wanted to hear some thoughts and, you know, uh, wanted to hear your reflections on the India story and where do you see the potential uh, on investments. Uh, and on your question, you asked the other speaker, you know, if I had $500,000, I would definitely, and I'm doing it already, I would definitely look at India as that, uh, you know, moment that USA had in the 1890s and then China had that in, in the 1990s, right? In terms right. of the cycles that we talk about. So over to you, sir. Right. Well, uh, before I answer that, I just I just uh, reminded of something. Um, the, 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 the second preceding person mentioned that there's a labor force shortage. Now, uh, just like in the Middle Ages during the plague, there was a labor shortage and labor got a real increase of maybe 50 or 60 percent in wages pretty quickly. We have got a labor shortage. So we've had a financialization going on, which all advanced cultures uh, live through since um, the 1960s. And that's caused a great wealth discrepancy and people with financial assets have done really well and people who didn't have them suffered. And there's been a huge loss to the labor force in terms of um, of uh, the ability to earn income. That's reversing right now. Now, it's reversing uh, because basically uh, empires, if they're growing, need people. Uh, this empire is growing less. The East Indian Empire is is growing. Uh, the Indian Empire is growing uh, fairly well. Africa's not. Chinese has got China's got challenges, which is why they're probably moving towards war. But while for, people accumulated a lot of wealth by buying real estate and buying financial assets for a long time, right now labor and entrepreneurialism is really, 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 really. I've said that five or six times in port. And I can think of jobs in the service sector. I can think of jobs in health, jobs in private education, uh, fitness, et cetera, or, or specific uh, jobs in technology where uh, human capital is now way more important than it's been for 50 years. So I, I just mentioned that as that's going to be a major source of, uh, of income to focus on as opposed to you know, third-party income. And when I think of real estate, I'm thinking of active real estate, not passive real estate. And I'm not thinking of highly levered real estate and, you know, very specific areas. So I was being more specific. So I just mentioned that again as being very important. I should also mention that the previous guy was speaking about socionomics. It's really, really important, I think, to be aware of what socionomics is. It was put together by a guy called Robert Prechter. It's an incredibly novel way of looking at the economic cycles. No one's ever done before. 
And I think if you get a couple of his books or if you look on his website, Robert Prechter, P-R-E-C-H-T-E-R, it's easy to understand. It's very good. And the comfort level you get to start to understand what's really going on in terms of social cycles, it just makes life a lot more pleasant and easier to understand. I think that's important. Now, in terms of the specific question about India, et cetera, um, I would say this. Uh, America at the present time appears on the decline, but it could take decades and decades to slow down. Number one. Uh, number two, if you're going to diversify across uh, countries, you know, um, I know a lot about certain real estate. I know a lot about certain commodities. I know a lot about certain things. But in terms of the world of where to put your money, I know a lot about, you know, maybe 2% of it or 1% of it. I know nothing about 99, 98% of it. So, you know, you have to really know your, your specific space. Uh, because India has got great demographics, and because it's essentially increasingly a liberal democratic country, and because of the slow or maybe accelerating or you know, de-dollarization, India's got to be a, a great place to invest if you know exactly what you're doing. So if you're going to get involved with India, you need to deal with experts that know India backwards and forwards. Just like if I get involved in real estate, I don't, I don't know Barry, I don't know Thunder Bay, I don't know Halifax but I do know certain parts of downtown Toronto. So, uh, you know, relatively speaking, uh, is Ray Dalio, you know, really keen on India? I'm sure he work with experts. And to the extent that you're not an expert, you, yeah, that's got to determine what the allocation is. And, uh, you know, but uh, like I mentioned, the, the post-imperial empire is, is occurring. The multipolar world probably is evolving germany is starting to change france is starting to change they're not supporting america and the ukraine very strongly neither is most of most most of the world including india which is standing back and being very careful so while the americans call it hedging uh modi calls it uh, you know proper uh, management of 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 his of of the population of his country so you know clearly it's a positive but man you've got to be an expert if you're going to get involved is what i would say you know, maybe, maybe you know you're, you're you know you know it backwards or forwards. So you, if you've got a fund or an ETF or something like that, that would be interesting. Or, or, or on your point? Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Just want to say your point, which are you know so critical right now, and we had a long discussion on this yesterday, because the World Population Report, just on the socioeconomic part, uh, you know, came out about five days ago, and you know the projected population growth of India by 2065 is about 1.7 billion. And sure. if you take a wild guess, the Chinese population is going to fall to half, about 700 million. But the most critical part is going to be the the youth dividend. And that's what we were talking about yesterday, that, you know, it is so... Yeah, the average age India. of the average Indian is what? In late 20s, early 30s? 27, 27. Yeah, but what does that and, tell you exactly? <laughs> and, and that will tell you that, you know, when you look at manufacturing, looking at the human capital, as you rightly pointed out, a human capital that she or he is killed to really either get into manufacturing all the technology advancement or so on and so forth. It has to come. In fact, I was joking the other day on, on a Twitter space with somebody in uh, in uh, Hong Kong, and I said, I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly you'll see that the dispute between India and China melts because China needs to know two important factors. 
one that it needs to also look at you know its uh, continued manufacturing interest and if they lose people who are already aging right and i just retweeted three tweets if anybody wants to look at the data out there i just retweeted three tweets that i used yesterday and you'll see that the china's aging population means that they need people who are qualified and skilled and the, the crazy scenario i said yesterday was that i don't know maybe china decides to actually ask indians to come and become the skilled workers at some point in 2035 or 2040 quite possible right germany's already very, opened very, its immigration very likely. policy very very yeah. likely very yeah likely. Uh, exactly and i think for india the biggest challenge really is uh, you know i think for us the piece would really be the 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 whole conversation about the energy and that's my last question i'm sorry i've taken the your perspective on the one of the key factor in shaping up the world today is the is the energy crisis right and over dependence on oil and gas and i do a lot of work on sustainable energy and it's not easy it's incremental we cannot overnight uh, just say you know oil and gas is gone we need to look at an incremental strategic approach so where do you look at in terms of investments uh, uh, in the world uh, in terms of companies that are really looking at green hydrogen a uh, solar biofuel and so on and so forth but thank you sure. so much for giving the opportunity to speak sure well number one i'll be totally honest about it i think i think this whole so called uh, oil and gas climate change is uh, a fabricated concept i don't i don't i don't believe it's in the least true uh if if uh, weather weather patterns change all the time they've been changing for millions of years thousands of years i mentioned in one of the earlier sessions toronto's uh physiology toronto's geography in the last 100 years has dramatically changed what used to be streams and rivers moving through toronto 100 years ago weren't even here then so i i don't believe in it in terms of resources i think the war, i agree with elon musk there's infinite amounts of resources resources get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so i think it's fabricated now uh i also believe and i mentioned this in the last discussion that at the end of the day you don't need people to produce stuff if people were of a certain personality we could all live off of robots and ro- robotization you'd only need about 1% of the population who controlled it all everybody else could be spiritual god-fearing loving and having a great spiritual uh quest but people in the world on the average aren't at that stage so you have to create jobs for people and i think that uh the whole global warming change at the whole capital boom the movement towards uh poly uh, uh uh communication technology the move towards new technologies new types of energies all those things relate to creating new jobs ripping up the old and creating the new so yeah uh, the stuff is going to be happening and it's 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 occurring um so you know you know where are you going to make money at it i don't know i mean look uh 30 40 years ago you would have thought 40 years ago you would have thought IBM was a great company and General Electric was a great company well IBM's not done particularly well neither is General Electric uh Microsoft now is doing fantastic cuz they're working with the US government Google has done really well how do you pick uh, the winners for AI and for biotechnology it's you know Vertex is proven VRTX in terms of proteomics and in terms of macromolecular medicine which is an area I know a lot about because I'm a physical chemist by training and a, I was a biotech analyst and I studied very closely it's hard to pick winners uh these are great places to have jobs in um uh transhumanism is key roboticism is key uh uh artificial intelligence 
uh, I don't know what to think about it. It really gets a form of roboticism. So, you know, I, I think uh, if, if, you know, uh, a lot of people I've been told by a few professors I know are not no longer wanting to study history and English and they're actually and, and sociology, et cetera, et cetera. They're moving into technical, technically skilled areas, as are the, the people in India. So those are the places to be. Um, but, you know, I, I couldn't tell you which company is going is to really create the next wonder drug, which company is, is producing the right uh, vaccines. The vaccines which were produced recently to deal with COVID-19 were all highly poisonous and dangerous. They didn't work at all. Macromolecular medicines have been problematic, but they aren't going to occur. So it's it's very hard to know. Now, India does produce, what, 40 percent of the world's drugs, but those are mostly generic drugs. About 70 70 percent. It's huge. Exactly. So, you know, it's there's a lot of interesting things that are going on. Uh, one thing I'll say for the uh, America is that uh, uh, there's still a, um, a strong scientific culture for the people at MIT and Caltech and Harvard. So uh, that's still continuing. Uh, but but China does a huge amount of publications and India does a huge amount of publications. But man, picking the winners is uh, it's about specific personalities. And the cycles, the life cycles around these businesses are, frankly, 40 years. They started working on genomics in the late 90s, and genomics has essentially been a complete and total failure to date in producing anything that's profitable or safe. So it's a very complicated area. Uh, but if you want to be an engineer or a biologist or a robotics specialist or a computer scientist, those are great places to be. And, uh, you know, those are my thoughts. Uh, I've got a great few, actually. I, I got a oh, message from someone. Uh, Sphinx, I, I saw you accepted that uh, speaking invite. Thank you. Get to you in uh, two minutes. Uh, so, Ravi, here's the questions. Um, this person told me to tell you that they are an Indian uh, who was born in Canada. First thing they said was only a few families control wealth in India. Therefore, how do people get involved in the economy if most of the people in India are poor? Uh, and then there's two other uh, points to get to, but you want to respond to that? It's, it's funny because I just tweeted like uh, 10 minutes ago the, the rise of the startups. And I think that's a very, very good question because that has been the, the, the way the old regime really functioned, right? And what I, because I do, I'm sitting on a lot of startups and I invest. So you see the rise of the new tier B and tier C cities and the startup initiatives. In fact, yesterday we had amazing startup uh, folks that were coming out. And one one thing that I've been saying, I, I'll, I'll put that on LinkedIn today, my white paper on India 2047 towards 30 trillion economy. And I think it's a, it's really a qu important question that we need to decentralize and really invest in those startups to become the uh, unicorns in the 2030s and the 2040s, because that is where the most critical part of India lies. And we see that now is really coming with the, you know, I. Uh, 10 years ago, I'm sure the person will agree, you could never get a minister uh, on of technology and skills on a Twitter space to with somebody sitting in New York and having an open discussion and open dialogue. And that is changing. I think the way uh, India is embracing this decentralized governance at a federal and at a state level is something which is really changing. In fact, if you go back to the World Economic Forum uh, this year, the Davos had a very interesting phenomena. While India was dominating, but within India, there were states competing to become the one trillion, uh, you know, case studies. So on your on your way specifically, happy to you know connect with you on LinkedIn and and also DM me. I will be happy to connect. Uh, where was asked that question? 
because there is a lot of work that India is right now doing is the third most uh, highly dense uh, space to have uh, startups. It completely changed the day, the time I was in India 25 years ago, where people will seek a job. Now everybody will say, you know, what is your startup? So that is that is where you know the investments are moving. A lot of folks are moving into pharmaceuticals. A lot of focus for folks are moving into AI, robotics. And, you know, I'll give you one very interesting, you know, I was speaking on an AI space and they were saying, you know, chat GPT. I said, guys, during COVID, we were supporting about 5,000 teachers to train about 5 million students across the middle school between 2020 and 2022 on AI skills. I said, this is before Satya Nadella made this big revelation of the world powered by AI. In India, we were already doing AI skilling on middle school students and linking them. We were doing trainings on crypto. We were doing training on the new financial uh, electronic uh, form of trade. And that is where I think the skilling and being ahead of the curve really will matter. So yes, a very good question, but that is slowly changing. It's difficult, but I'm very confident that it will change. And I, I see that. I'm, I'm working very closely. And if you're on LinkedIn, you'll see my white paper on India 2047 towards a 30 trillion economy. Uh, I, I think we'll uh, definitely uh, reach there. You said you had two okay. more questions. Yeah, just two more things. Actually, if they're so successful, why are so many Indians sending their kids to Canada to study? And then the last one was, uh, ask him how someone can invest in India when there is so much corruption. Yeah, so I think, I think uh, uh, first of all, I think uh, the, the focus on Canada is very interesting. I mean, it's, India, first of all, is not, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a very diverse uh, demography. Uh, India has two important phenomena happening. It's had a skewed uh, youth bulge. So you see that the youth bulge is really happening in the, in the north uh, of the part of India. And there are certain states like Punjab, uh, which used to be a very, very successful state about 15 years ago, is probably the number 16th in the state GDP. And that is where you see a lot of folks coming from that state and moving towards Canada. Whereas there's reverse migration happening, a lot of folks who've been traditionally out in Australia, Europe, UK, USA, many of us, including some of us, have now opened our offices and are spending almost six months back home uh, uh, into the other home, I would say. Uh, and that is happening. I think the inequality is definitely a reality, but the other reality is uh, in the last 10 years, India lifted 400 million people out of poverty. And these are statistics, you can verify them. It's all IMF, World Bank data. And I think there will be, of course, inequalities that will persist. And since the, the size is so huge, right? It's 1.3 billion. It's mind boggling, right? And I think it will take some time. And in terms of corruption, I think the, one of the best examples I would uh, give is a, is a state called Uttar Pradesh. I was invited to actually write a white paper on, uh, uh, you know, visualizing Uttar Pradesh as a one trillion economy uh, in the next 15 years. And, you know, Uttar Pradesh was seen as one of the most corrupt, one of the most uh, violent states. And what you've seen is a state which used to be amongst, uh, say, 36 states. Number 20 has gone up to number three with very strong governance and accountability mechanisms. So you see some parts of India which are moving towards more democratic, transparent, accountable system, whereas some states still continue in the old format. So really to understand India, you need to understand the diversity and the heterogeneity. But I would say on a positive note, I think there is definitely a stronger 
mechanism mainly because of e-governance and the fact that you know that unbanked people have been put onto banking system onto uh, UPI system that is where you start to follow that black money and that uh, flow of uh, you know the flow of the illicit uh, financial uh, system right and it's changing and i think uh, i'm 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 actually amazed i was there 2 weeks ago and i was i was amazed to see some things that are that are working towards the right thing it's not utopic but i think there's stronger awareness on uh, cracking down on corruption okay um i did get a, another dm actually it said folks from punjab are moving uh because of genocide which is still happening in other parts of countries uh with minorities like muslim and sikh that's just a comment that i got dm um okay so i'm going to move on ravi someone is trying to connect with you on linkedin i i guess they're trying to connect your twitter with your linkedin uh did you want to just can you let us know what your linkedin is uh, so we can find you there uh, it's just ravi karkara i mean i i can i can tweet that out too you can just uh, do that okay, absolutely great. but thank, thank you, you so much. much to you and said yeah i'll go to listen now thank you okay thanks thanks for joining All hi right. thank you for the invite hi sydney nice to hi <laughs> nice to hear you again always good to hear your voice thank you you as well um so Sydney, you said a couple of things that that like perked my ears, and I dotted them down. Uh, one of them was, uh, uh, you have to know the difference between uh, wealth and money. So I wanted to say a couple of things about that, and then get your uh, get some uh, commentary from you on it, uh, because you didn't really talk about it, and it was one of the most important things I think you said. Uh, so I, I I just wanted to say this is this is. to me very essential right because when you look at money as a unit of exchange a unit of um a store of value uh that sort of thing and then wealth being basically the total value of all your assets okay i think this distinction is really important because what happens is we make short-sighted decisions for immediate money which we think is wealth but it's not and so i i think i don't know if you we're making reference to adam smith's um uh wealth of nations but um i just think that that book if anybody wants to read that even though he talks about it on a nation state level it, a lot of the things that he talks about are applicable to personal finance believe it or not um and anyway i just wanted to know if you would elaborate more on that money versus wealth okay so hold hold on there uh i'm going to comment on it i i uh, <laughs> uh that's here's my thoughts on that um i'm going to take about 5 or 6 minutes to talk about it because it's it's actually underlies what this whole series of talk was about and in the following way the reason i took this approach in the last 5 or 6 talks is that i know from personal experience that Virtually everything you study in university about economics and finance, and everything you read in the newspapers about wealth accumulation and savings, or on social media, is uh, silly. And it's uh, most of it's self-serving, and even the stuff that's not self-serving is is extreme and it's very opinionated, and it doesn't really deal with with the ultimate truths. The only there's only two popular people I've come across in in the popular communication vehicles that actually are fairly truthful 
And uh, those people are Robert Prechter of Elliott Wave. He's very specific, and he, he understands the relationship between civilization, society, and, and wealth. He's good. And the other person who we all talk about a lot is Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Those guys are actually serious, and they're not particularly self-serving. They actually do tell you the truth, but you have to really work hard to get on it. Now, when it comes to wealth, um, I talked about um, what the Bible means by wealth, and I've talked about what the original words for wealth were in the Old Testament and the New Testament and in Egypt. And the words for wealth were words like gold, silver, food, and family. That was wealth. So money was was not really part of it all. And when we often quote the Old Testaments or, or, or the or the uh, or the uh, Egyptian texts, and when they're translated as money, the actual words words are gold, silver, food, and um, and seed and rice. Uh, that real wealth is the ability to live, survive. That's physical wealth. Now, spiritual wealth is the ability to know what to do in your life and what to do with your time. That's really what wealth is. Now, you know, we've been in, into money uh, for about two or 3,000 years. And for uh, money became associated with wealth. And really, that happened because during stable times, people start to store their money in, in uh, start to store their wealth occasionally in money. And banks start to develop because people start borrowing and notes become real and people start to invest in notes, commercial paper and stuff. And it starts to take on a fetish, an idol worship, a physical thing, a physical idea. And, you know, in peaceful times, that's okay. Those things are wealth uh, because they store value just by coincidence. But as soon as peaceful times end as soon as war starts as soon as society starts to change and we're in the middle of that right now the last time we were there was the 1930s and before that was the 1910s and before that was the 1860s you had the 1840s you had the the revolutions in europe and you had the civil war before that it was the 1770s and before that it was the 1720s it's really every 70 years that's when you realize none of this stuff is wealth um so, it's easy. so if you look at Bitcoin, there's an example. Bitcoin was supposed to be a a a a, a, a way to do transactions, but look as to what it's become in the popular mind. It's not a transaction vehicle anymore. It's a speculative way to, to carry money or carry, you know, some kind of notion of value. Um, so you have to look at the times and you have to look at, you know, what really is wealth. Wealth is the ability to survive with other people. That's what wealth is. Once you're not starving to death and not having to fight animals and snakes and, and lions and leopards and tigers and you're, and you're living to be 12 or 13 or 20 years old, uh, that's when a society forms and that's when things start to get very confused. And uh, when you're in a good society, like uh, Marcus Aurelius was a great emperor in Rome. Society was good while he was there, but the second he died, he went bad. Hammurabi was a great tyrant or a great a dictator or a great king. But the second he died, it went bad because all the people who replaced him weren't any good. And George Washington and Thomas Jefferson are probably pretty good, but America was a pleasant place for maybe 50 years, more or less. It's a mess again. So, you know, uh, 
wealth is really a, the lesson is that wealth has got to be your ability to survive comfortably and live happily with people, be it a spouse, be it children, be it neighbors. That's ultimately what wealth is. And at the present time, human capital, the ability to earn an income is actually very, very important. And I'll, I'll diversify a bit with that. My belief is that if you're going to get into fitness education, health education, artificial intelligence, being a computer scientist or being a programmer or a service kind of business or a delivery person or any of that stuff, you can, you can do well in that business. But of every 1,000 people who try to be more than just an employee or barely survive, of every 1,000 people, there might be four or five people that actually make it pretty well. In the easy times, everyone does well. Like Buffett says, when the tide's up, everyone does well. But in the tough times, there's not many people that do well. You get the slaves who work for the, for, for the, for the masters, for the emperors, for the governments. All right, you know, they, they do okay. But if you want to do well and be happy, so to speak, uh, how, how do you get into that four or five out of a thousand people who do it? That's the wealthy. And that's the attitude of, uh, understanding the spiritual world and then you know we've talked about socionomics you've talked about Frechter, etc cetera, etc cetera. i highly highly recommend neville goddard g-o-d-d-a-r-d neville n-e-v-i-l-l-e uh popular writer in the 1960s and the 1950s and 40s he explains what wealth really is in a very practical practical way and i have found him to be the best writer there ever was way better than tony robbins uh, way better than Napoleon Hill, way better than Bob Proctor. Uh, he really explains <laughs> wealth. So in summary, there's two aspects to wealth. There's the uh, transaction value of money versus money as a as an idol or as a fetish. There's that change, and that's not that hard to understand that it's illusory. But then there's spiritual wealth. And translating the spiritual world, the idea world, into the uh, practical world, that's the real wealth. Now, the reason most people aren't even faintly aware of it is because we're living in this postmodern world created by Marxism, created by socialism, created by Nietzsche, created by all these crazy existential philosophers. We're living in the postmodern world, you know, who've taken over the universities. And they don't believe in anything. There's no truth. Everything is relative. Uh, it, it's everyone's got their own truth and it's not very pleasant and it's got people confused. And even uh, Elon Musk, I think, is confused by that, or at least he talks like he's confused by it. So you've got to get spiritual in a very practical way. And I highly recommend Neville Goddard, easy to understand. His books cost like 10 bucks on Amazon and he's awesome. Uh, I don't know, Sphinx, what do you think? That was awesome. That think? was awesome. I do want to offer uh, uh, my sort of definition of of wealth as well. Um, uh, so I did a I was on a panel many years ago with Sue Zorman, and she said uh, that you should. Uh, she was advising, uh, you know, we're talking to people. It was like a thousand people, uh, several of us there, and she she mentioned she said you should always have six months of emergency funds so that if you don't make it have any incoming uh, if you don't have any income coming in, that you have at least six months of cushion. 
And that got me thinking, partly because I happen to be neurotic and psycho and take everything to the extreme. Uh, but it got me to think about, uh, I looked at wealth differently. And I, I started to define wealth in units of time. Meaning, uh, for me, I started to calculate right then and there. I was thinking, how wealthy am I in terms of time? If I were to stop making the income that I'm making today, today, how long would I be able to maintain my current level of lifestyle without having to do anything else? And that was very revealing to me. So that for me, I, I, I define wealth as how, how much, how long can I sustain this, assuming it's a good lifestyle, right, that, that, I, that I want to or that I currently have, um, how about without money coming in? So it's almost like a lack of incoming money. What wealth do you have for right. me? Right. Uh, that's, that's a good, that, I think that's one of a few models that one would want to have. Um, biblically speaking and philosophically speaking, it means don't be dependent on other people. Don't become a beggar. Uh, uh, you, you have to uh, be independent. Uh, that's true. Can I just add something to that? Please. Um, you know, the divorce rate is like 60% and the marriage rate in North America is like uh, horrendous. Never in the history of person kind as a sole individual who wasn't part of a family been able to survive. Um, never. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of a tragedy, I think, in the Western world right now. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's been the cause of de demographics. A lot of people believe life isn't worth living. It's too depressing. Why would you want to have kids, et cetera, et cetera. People defer forming uh, uh, partnerships. Uh, that's a part of wealth as well, having personal partnerships. Uh, you know, we used to call it marriage, call it whatever you want. Uh, but there's also business partnerships, lifelong business partnerships. People who live on their, on their own personally and people who haven't got, you know, partnerships with at least one other person commercially. It's never worked over the history of, of person kind. It's never it, it couldn't succeed. So that's part of wealth as well. Social relationships and, and personal uh, human relationships. You don't need a lot, but but you can't have zero. If I may add just a final thing to that, that I, I, I would just want to say, um, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of this about um, sort of uh, modern days um, focus on money versus wealth. Well, I think that, you know, you talk about partnerships and, and unions, whether it's in the um, uh, business realm or in, in the personal realm, because as we know, even if if you unite with someone romantically, you it's easier to build an empire that way, right? So, yep. so, but I think what's happened is, no thanks to social media has really sort of helped uh, this problem exacerbate. Because why? Because people now can uh, basically pretend to be wealthy uh, without being wealthy. And so it's it's this sort of thing. They're posting a picture of a Rolex. Here's my Rolex, right? Where you don't even know whose hand that is, really. And 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 the point is, it is putting value on the on the immediate feedback of of the, that you get from people that you don't know. 
And it's like wealth, it, it, that is so anti the antithesis of wealth. So I just think that part of the culture has really gone that way as well. I agree with you. Could I, can I uh, uh, add to that just a little bit? I know this is starting well, to sound like psychology. We're going to stay here all day. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what I would add to that is the following. Um, it's not, it's not that hard when you're talking to somebody for 10 minutes or half an hour or have a couple of meetings to tell who's lying, who's a con person and who's not. It's not that hard. And that's a skill set people have to develop. <laughs> the other thing is that when you talk to people on Twitter, or if you talk to people on Zoom, that's not a relationship. You actually have to talk to people face to face. And that's something which uh, a wealthy person realizes. You, ha you have to have, you know, contact, you know, uh, mechanical, audiovisual, real contact with people to be able to evaluate them and judge them. And um, you can't do that digitally. So that, that's... Yeah, and there's also, you know, energy. Energy is a real thing, too. Right. When you're in the presence of someone, you, you, you can pick up things. Um, does any, Sphinx, do you have anything else? I just, I, I just took up like 30 minutes of Sydney, so no. Okay. Well, you know, if, uh, everybody else that's listening, if you want to put your hand up, you have something to say, you want to add to the conversation, please do it now. Uh, we do have a tradition of ending these uh, Twitter spaces w uh, with this type of conversation, and I do think it's a great way to end it, uh, frankly, uh, more on a spiritual level. Um, but, yeah, this is kind of last call for, for anyone to, you know, put their hand up. If I don't know you, um, please just DM me a question and let me know kind of what you want to talk about first. Uh, I do appreciate that. Uh, so we'll give people maybe two minutes to do that. Sid, final thoughts? Uh, just case nobody does put their hand up well we're, two we're things uh, well three things uh, anyone that's 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 on robert prechter socionomics you got to at least get one of his books because he really helps understand helps explain the world and for the parts of the world that say a guy like elon musk doesn't cover or or uh, or uh, warren buffett he covers it now that's crucial number two i mentioned neville goddard g-o-d-d-a-r-d absolutely essential um, he actually explains the transmutation of the spiritual into the material and the physical, which, which is like, you know, money, wealth, savings. Uh, that's, uh, that's really, really crucial. Uh, and third thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, the most important, uh, information out there is not taught by the universities and not taught by schools. You got to pick it up from other sources. It's remarkable, but, but it's a fact. Schools and universities tend to support the empire or the emperor, and they're they're like um, what's his name at MIT, the uh, the language, the uh, uh, philologist uh, Noam Chomsky. Like Noam Chomsky says, you know, universities and education institutions are primarily uh, propaganda outfits. So if you want real knowledge, you, you got to sort of find it yourself, and uh, you know, those are some pretty damn good sources. Well, nobody's put their hand up. I think this is a great spot to leave it. Um, okay. On behalf of everybody, uh, Sid, thank you very much for putting your presentation together today. And uh, so far, four four parts of the series. And you know, if you have any anything new, then we'll do an another one. Um, whether that's next Sunday, two Sundays, three Sundays from now. Um, hopefully, we will have another uh, a part to this. I'd like to thank all of the people that uh, requested to speak and spoke today and had questions. Fantastic. 
Um, and, that, and that's basically it. So, uh, Sid, again, just uh, we'll leave it with you. Final words. Uh, send us off, and then I'll, I'll close the space off. I think that's it. I think this initial series, in terms of setting a structure or a, a basis for these types of, uh, you know, advanced uh, discussions on finance and investing, I, I think that's we've really covered it. And I guess you're you're saving some of these on Spotify, right? Yes, they go up on Spotify the next day, Apple Music, all these other podcast places. So, or and, and people on Twitter can just listen to the recording there too. Right. Okay. Uh, we've uh, you know we haven't heard anything too much uh, the last couple of weeks about bank collapses and stuff like that, but uh, don't be surprised to see it all come back. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, well, I'd like to do a deeper dive uh, on real estate, uh, a re- real estate-specific focused uh, Twitter space. Um, I think that makes sense. Yes, I think it does, too. And I know a few people, I, I know those things, I remember you, you private messaged me, no, that's not the person I was thinking of. Actually, the person I was thinking of, his name is Daniel Foch. He's a Canadian, uh, and I think he's got the number one Canadian real estate uh, podcast. But obviously, I don't want to ignore the U.S. and, and the global uh, real estate market, frankly. Because uh, they they're sort of all intertwined, and I think it's to talk about global real estate would be fascinating. But yeah, I'm not going to be inviting that person that you private messaged me. Right. Okay. Uh, we'll I'll close okay. it off there. <laughs> Everyone, <I got> it. <laughs> enjoy your uh, week coming up, and uh, be safe. Love your neighbor. Take, Take care. care.